Before we get into today's Reddit stories, I first of all need to tell you about one of my other favorite Reddit podcasts out there, The OKOP Show. If you guys are looking for even more daily Reddit content, then The OKOP Show with John and Sam is perfect for you. Just search for the letters OKOP wherever you get your pods. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com/people today. Now for our third escalating revenge post. Petty revenge on my abusive mother turned into 9 years of torment. She never knew it was me responsible for the clink. This happened in 2004 when I was 14. A bit of backstory before I begin. My mother is not a good person. She was abusive verbally for most of my life until I was 14 when her abuse turned physical. Because of her abuse, I came up with creative ways to punish her in my own petty ways, like tampering with her food and dunking her toothbrush in the toilet every day. This story is one of my better petty revenges towards her and the one that annoyed her the most. I talked to my friends about the things she did to me, and although I appreciated the advice to go to the police, I knew that wouldn't work. My mother is very convincing when she wants to be, and every other time I went to the police, they never believed me. One of my friends, who we'll call Tom, gave me a brilliant idea that would annoy her to no end, but wouldn't get me in trouble. His dad is a mechanic, so Tom knows his way around a car. After school that day, I went with him to his house. He showed me a place underneath the car, between the top of the front wheel and the side of the engine, and told me what to do. Bring on the pettiness. I had to wait a few days to enact my revenge, but the day finally arrived. My mother and my sister left the house to ride their horses, which gave me plenty of time to do what needed to be done. The next day, I went with my mum and sister to do grocery shopping, and I was elated to hear the product of my labor as the car starts to drive down the driveway. Clink, clink, clink. Yes, dear readers, I attached a rock to the end of a string inside the car that made a loud clink sound every few seconds when the car was moving. What the heck is that? Asked my mum. No idea. Maybe you should get the mechanic to have a look at it. Remember how I said that Tom's dad is a mechanic? Well, he's the only mechanic in the town we lived in. And Tom made sure to tell his dad about the things my mother did to me. Needless to say, he was on my side. So after we'd done our shopping, we stopped at the mechanic so they could look at it and fix whatever needed fixing. As we arrived at the mechanic, my mum said, Hi there. Um, well, my car is making a weird noise when I'm driving. Can you look at it for me? Sure thing. How about you take a seat inside and I'll give it a drive and see what the problem is, said the mechanic. He got in the car and drove it around the block. When he returned, the noise had miraculously stopped. He charged my mum for the check and we were on our way. But not before Tom's dad subtly handed me the rock back and gave me a wink and a smile as I left. That night, I put the rock back in place and left it to do its thing for the next day. And oh boy, was this satisfying. The next day, the noise was back, so mum was back at the mechanic. But this time, the mechanic couldn't find anything wrong with it and couldn't hear any noise. I never bothered taking the rock out after that, and neither did the mechanic. 
He'd experienced her entitlement firsthand and had heard many stories from other people around town about her. The rock wasn't damaging the car or affecting its performance, so there was nothing that actually needed fixing. I moved away to live with my dad when I was 16, but before I moved, the clink was still there, tormenting my mother every time she drove the car. I lost count of the number of times she took it back to the mechanic and the amount of money she spent on getting rid of the clink. Now here is where my petty revenge turned pro out of sheer good luck. The last time I saw my mother, I was 23, back in 2013, and she still has the same car. Now I'd expected the rock to have fallen out by then, but the car still has a clink. Thanks, Tom. And there we go. Saving the best till last. Yeah, it's not the most severe revenge, but that is the exact point of this subreddit. The whole point is that it's escalating. Can you imagine the daily torment that your mum, OP, had to go through or has been through for how long? What, a decade? <laughs> Sorry, you're saying that, that this first died when you were 14 and when you were 23, it was still going on. That's in 2013. Who knows? We're 10 years on after that now. OP is now 33. Who knows, the clinks could still be there to this day. That is the literal definition of escalating revenge. Doing literally nothing else to the car, but still ruining your mum's life, or at least affecting it negatively every single day. That is sheer brilliance. Now disgraced physician gets what's coming to him. Again and again and again. Thanks for killing my wife. This really happened to me. And due to the sensitive nature of it all, including court appearances, licensing ramifications of the accused, and just out of respect for the unnecessarily short life of my first, I will change all names and locations, and enough of the details that don't matter, like what state, etc., so that privacy is kept. Either 10, 20, or 30 years ago, I married my high school sweetheart, Betty. I just graduated high school, and she was staying in high school pregnant with our first child frankie at age 18 19 throughout her pregnancy and our dating i was informed of betty's condition of epilepsy she had infrequent seizures and i've seen her have a grand mal seizure twice before the incident once while eating and once on a family hike the light flickering through the trees triggered it we think so later down the road we have our second child living on our own in a trailer park in Bloxnart. my wife has always been a little bit punk dyeing her hair many times over and over, and now having to shave her head as a result of her extremely damaged hair. She dyed what was left of her hair pink. She was a belly dancer, had a style of her own, and really had a don't F with me vibe that she gave off to anybody but me and our two boys, Frankie and Sam. These aren't just nostalgic details. They're important to the slowly increasing plots. That being said, one afternoon while Betty is getting ready to drop the boys off at grandma's to hit the mall, she had another seizure, a bad one. It's hard to be too descriptive without choking up right now, but she knew it was coming the second before. She hits the ground. I do my part to put her on her side and sweep the mouth. I know this is frowned upon now for some reason, but it's what her parents train me to do. I call an ambulance telling them help my wife is having a grand mal seizure a bad one whilst trying to instruct my frightened three-year-old to go to mummy's bedroom sammy was hardcore napping at 11 months literally inches away the ambulance shows up and takes her i stay back because grandma isn't there yet for the kids i called to make sure she'd be there soon otherwise i'd have to drag the kids with me to the local hospital grandma gets there and i drive to the hospital as fast as possible I get there pretty quick and talk to the doctor within a few minutes. 
The ER physician we'll call Dr. Thorough, steeped in irony, whose mercy I was at, told me that we're going to put her under to do a CAT scan slash MRI slash something having nothing to do with her epilepsy. In my naivety, not understanding that I can tell him what I want him to do, I just said, okay. I did tell him, however, that she had a seizure and has had seizures in the past, etc. But he didn't believe that the seizure was epileptic in nature. He asked me about drugs she's taken, alcohol, etc. And I told him, no, she doesn't do that. But she did have a drink a couple of nights ago. He was super convinced, based on her appearance, I presume, that this was drugs and that she just needed to get it out of her system. Toxicology comes back. No drugs in system. Dr. Thoreau says, this doesn't test for all drugs out there. Wow, doc. So she's put under now, kept in that state. In the meanwhile, no EEG machine, which measures brainwaves, to determine that, yeah, she's having a seizure, Dumbo. Give us some phenobarb or whatever. I didn't know the importance of all this at the time, so we're just waiting for this test and that test and for her to come out of the underness or whatever. This takes a day and a half. They finally allow slash acquire an EEG machine with an EEG tech and come to find out I was right that all along she was having seizures the entire time. Now she is brain dead. Now I'm signing DNRs and hospice and neurologists are asking me about Buddhism and if I've tried it. Nice try. So she died days later. Then something called 9-11 happened, which not only was five days after what would have been my wife's 23rd birthday, but exactly my 25th. Let's just say it was a rough year. My father-in-law tries to go to one of those law tigers with the case, but they say it needs to come from the husband. At first, I didn't want to go through this process, despite knowing that this mofo's arrogance caused my wife's demise. But I eventually lawyer up, get referred to a great attorney on contingency, and begin the lawsuit process. Revenge is starting. EEG techs, hospitals, various entities involved in Betty's care all separately settled out of court for unspecified amounts. Well, specified to me, obviously. This, though, is just the beginning of the revenge. Of all the entities that bowed out of the fight and handed over a check, the arrogant doc wasn't having it. He wanted a trial. He really wanted me to have to relive the pain that I've been going through the past couple of years just to protect his or her name. So we take it to court. Revenge by jury. Seven to two in favor of the plaintiff. Dr. Thoreau fell below the standard of care. Judgment for umpteen million dollars. Goodbye money. Civil suit done, enter fallout in the medical community. Ultimate revenge is that the doctor had his license suspended for a time and didn't practice medicine for a long time. Then he tried his or her hand at different types of professions, unemployable in the medical field to this day. Right now, that doctor is broker than I ever was. Listen guys, I'll be completely honest. I'll be the first to say that I do love a revenge story. When someone's been wronged and you get sufficient and right justice, there's nothing that I love more than that. And there is a reason why revenge subreddits like this one are some of my favorite on Reddit. However, in this story, I've gotta tell the truth. I don't really feel like you got much revenge at all yeah you ruined the guy's career but he killed your wife like this you know we're not really speaking about a couple of things that are, that are even in the same ballpark there like it's nuts that's the least that deserved to happen to this man like he deserved to go to prison sorry man or woman deserves to go to prison right is this not just clear neglect and just ultimate arrogance and ultimately if you're in this position of power which you are as a doctor or a physician or whatever whatever role this person had and you don't do your job and that ends in you actually you know 
causing someone's death? Is that not manslaughter? Like, yeah, you ruined his job and his professional life, but I feel like he deserves to go to prison for this, not just not get much money. Do you get what I'm saying? Guys, in the comments, let me know if you agree. Let's move on. Now for our second story of escalating revenge. Should have just let me walk away with my share. All you had to do was let me walk away. Some background. I am a practicing internal medicine physician and formerly a 50% owner in what was once a fairly successful med spa with four locations, at least until what happened below. Before anyone accuses me of breaking the law, blah, 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 don't. This has been litigated, resolved, and I won. But it is a fun story. In the beginning, my business partner and I were mere acquaintances, working with a large hospitalist practice. Looking for extra income to pay our student loans, we decided to band together and open a med spa offering Botox, minor cosmetic procedures, B12 infusions, etc. And it was a huge hit, big enough for us to go full-time and expand. This lasted around seven years. Beginnings of problems. My partner decides that his wife isn't enough for him and begins to step out on her. Now, this is none of my business. However, it does become my business when you embezzle money to pay for your sugar baby's gifts from our business accounts. Fast forward a few years and I've sat on this information because business overall was too good to walk away from. However, COVID changed things and we had to close two of our four locations. My partner has never been great with money or time management, which is why for the most part, I handled all of the back office stuff from ordering supplies to billing and payroll and so on. This comes into play later. Around six months ago, I began looking for a new position and found a new job. I didn't want to leave my partner in a hard spot, so I gave him a 90-day notice to find another partner or otherwise get his business affairs in order before I resigned. He instead used this time to siphon off more funds for his side piece and allow his unruly children to ransack my office while I was away on a family vacation and frequently not showing up to work or showing up late or super hungover, leaving me to do extra work. So it was my time to go and get even finally the time had come to wind down my time per our agreement my partner was to buy out my 50 percent of the practice which we agreed would occur on the monday of my last week basically i take 50 percent of our liquid assets as a bank transfer monday upon checking the bank account had been locked out and upon regaining access i found that thirty thousand dollars of my half had been moved to an account i did not have access to I had it and spent the next few days plotting my revenge. Remember those back office things that I handled above? Well, all of those documents, processes, order forms, etc. Well, they're all on our shared office hard drive and absolutely vital to the practice and way too much work for my partner to do himself in a short time. Now, I just so happened to buy an identical model and take the original hard drive home with me. Upon plugging the hard drive in, I found a backup of his calendar, pictures and emails between he and his mistress, which I forwarded to his wife. The following day, I ran a full-page ad in the local paper announcing a special holiday deal on our services, which we had planned. And lastly, I hired some college students to write a slew of bad reviews on Google and Yelp to tank the overall ratings. Aftermath. The week after my departure, the clinic was insanely busy and quickly ran out of supplies. Since the order forms, etc. were gone, he had to turn away new and long-standing clients. My partner sued for the documents, etc. And I countersued for the $30,000 he owed me. We settled by exchanging the two. I've since heard his wife divorced him, his mistress left him, and subsequently he has filed for bankruptcy as the clinic never recovered. And his wife cleaned him out. 
I, on the other hand, really like my new job. Okay, that is more like it. That seems like more justified revenge. You know, eye for an eye sort of stuff. Rather than your wife dying and then you saying, okay, you're not going to be a doctor anymore. And that being that, this is more fair, which I love. Honestly, I would just say this is excellent revenge. I mean, someone, your business partner was doing terrible things. You weren't really getting good deal anyway. You were putting in way too much work for what you were getting out of it, just 50%. It felt like, to be honest, you were putting in maybe 70 to 80% of the effort and he was just putting in, I don't know, a little bit on the side. So uh, yeah, being able to just get out of there and also destroy him at the same time, excellent revenge. Good stuff. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. I beat the heck out of my sister and sent her to the hospital. I can finally talk about this because all the legal proceedings have been dealt with. So I've been dating my boyfriend, Mark, for about five years. He is the best thing that has ever happened to me. He's kind, smart, understanding, and absolutely beautiful. When we started dating, he was a bit closed off and was afraid to initiate any form of intimacy. I at first thought it was because I was his first relationship and maybe he was nervous. But six months into us dating, he tells me that between the ages of five and 12, he was SA'd and awed by his mother. His father left when he was around four. It screwed him up in the head for a while. And when it got out, his mother was arrested and he and his two older sisters were put in the custody of their grandparents, who they lived with ever since. He was placed in intensive therapy and still goes to this day. He's come a long way and has healed a lot, but he still has some days where he gets really depressed and cries. Part of his therapy was exercising. So about two years ago, he and I started doing some bodybuilding workouts. I toned up a lot, put 20 extra pounds of muscle on, and he toned up a bit. Because we've been dating for so long and have marriage in mind, he told my family all about what had happened, though a less detailed version, and they welcomed him with love and support. Now for my sister, Sally. I've suspected that she's had a bit of a crush on him. She'll flirt sometimes here and there, but he never reciprocated and usually ignored her. I've talked to her about it so many times, but she didn't listen. To make a long story short, I'd gone out one Saturday afternoon with some friends to get some drinks and left Mark behind because he didn't feel like going. My sister had texted me prior to ask if she could borrow a few things from me, a sweatshirt, DSLR camera, and a third thing that doesn't come to mind at the moment. I said sure and to get it whenever. She went when I was out, unknowingly. When I came home, I found my boyfriend on the ground, crying his eyes out, and my sister trying to calm him down. He was having a panic attack. It's never safe to touch him when he has an episode because he may act out violently due to his headspace. Her hands were all over him and he was trying to push her away. Her shirt was also on the ground and she was only in her bra. I tore her away and asked what the frick she was doing. She said that she was trying on the sweatshirt when he walked in on her, freaked out, and went into an episode. However, Mark, through his tears, said that she tried to touch him. I asked my sister if it was true, and she said no, but Mark again said she tried to touch him. We have cameras in the house, and I pointed them out to my sister. Her face went white, and I don't know what came over me, but I saw red. 
I can't remember much because I was so angry, but I beat the heck out of her. I can't even remember if I was the one who called 911 or it was her through her beat up states. I do remember kind of snapping out of it because Mark was still going through his episode and I could hear him crying louder and I had to help him through it. It's all a haze. So I broke my sister's nose and gave her a black eye and bruised her ribs. She was in the hospital for a few days. Well, there we go. A pretty insane story to start with. But Opie has given us an update and some more context around this post. First of all, this all happened right before COVID hit, the end of 2019, and everything was just settled this last month. Now, this was posted on the 4th of March, 2022. So that's how long it took. Secondly, the incident happened in our kitchen. The front door leads down a hall directly to our open kitchen and to the right is our living room that leads to the bedrooms. Third, we have cameras in every room but the bathrooms and bedrooms because we have a great Dane named Butler. He's black and has a white oval patch from his chest to his tummy. He looks like a butler who likes to get into everything. So we set up cameras to keep an eye on him while we're out. The cameras don't have sound recording. Four, my sister didn't R mark but she did try to coerce him into sexual activities. And five, my sister didn't know I was out when she came over. I don't have the recording anymore. It was too painful to keep, let alone watch. Also, my memory of the whole thing is hazy, but the tape showed Mark answering the door. Again, our cameras don't have sound recording, but Mark said that when he answered the door, she told him that she was there to get my camera and sweatshirt. He said, okay, and let her in. He was watching TV, so he went back to his show while she walked into our room. She called out to him for help and the cameras showed Mark getting up to help her. I don't remember how long they were in there, but the tape showed Mark rush out of the room while holding his hands out as if trying to stop an attacker. My sister then emerged half naked while holding onto her shirt. Mark backed up into the kitchen, still holding his hand out, and she advanced towards him. Mark said he was telling her to put her shirt on and to leave, but she kept saying something along the lines of, hey, it's okay, I just need some help, that's all. And... You're a nice guy. Just help me out a little. I think by that point, he was declining into a panic attack as he started shaking. My sister took that opportunity to hug him. She said she did it to try and calm him down, but the tape showed her kind of grinding up on him. He pushed her away and fell to the ground crying and screaming. She then got down by him and was trying to wave her hands through his hair. Her other hand was also moving up towards his crotch. I remember from the tape seeing Mark flinch backwards and trying to push her away. She always moved back closer to him though. A few minutes later is when I got home and beat her to an inch of her life. I can't remember who called the police, but the police showed up and my sister limped to the door while I was trying to calm Mark down. I kind of remember them asking questions and trying to help Mark calm down as well. They thought he was going into shock, so they put a blanket over him and the paramedics came. My sister was quickly evaluated and then taken to hospital. Mark and I stayed behind because by that point, he started to regain control again. I remember my parents showing up and asking what happened and I told them everything. My mum stayed with Mark and I while my dad drove to the hospital to see my sister. Mark and I pressed charges on my sister, emotional trauma and sexual battery, class A1 felony where I'm from. My sister tried to sue me, a misdemeanor charge, but it fell through. With the evidence we had, my sister was sentenced to 60 days of incarceration with a bond of $5,000. No one paid. She also had to serve 200 hours of community service and her name was added to a sex offender registry she can appeal to the courts to have it removed after 10 
years. She was also placed under a restraining order. On top of that, my sister owes us $25,000. I got a small slap on the wrist and I have to do 50 hours of community service. Nothing too bad. My sister was cut off by some of the family and still is. Mark regressed tremendously to the point that he couldn't sleep in the same bed as me for months. He was required to go into even more extensive therapy. He's come some way, but nowhere like he was before it happened. It's going to take a long time for him to heal. I consider myself bisexual, but I lean more towards men while Mark is 100% gay. He finds the female body disturbing to the point that we've had to skip over full female nudity scenes in movies. My sister knew all of this. When I asked her why then she would do this, she said that she thought she could change his mind. I'm not proud of what I did, but I'm also not sorry. Oh man, there we go. I mean, what a story. You know what? I actually really, really like the revenge here. Now, I know, I know what you're thinking. Two wrongs don't make a right. But I've read a lot of revenge stories where the revenge is perhaps meticulous or drawn out over a number of years. And while that is great, sometimes I do just sit and think to myself, if you've seen something happen, why not just sort it right there and then? And look, obviously you never want to be in this position, a truly horrible thing to go through, but I kind of like the fact that OP was just like, you know what, screw this. I am dealing with this right now. And yeah, it's my sister, but she's done a truly heinous thing and she deserves to be punished for it. What I absolutely love the most about the story, I mean, I'm saying love the most about the story. What I mean is what I love most about the, the resolution of this story, of course, is the fact that nobody paid the $5,000 bond. Not one member of your family paid that money. And a lot of the family now don't even talk to your sister. That just shows to me that everyone in the family knew, despite the fact that this is family, she's done a truly awful thing and she does not deserve to get out lightly. But the fact of the matter is her reasoning there at the end, saying that she thought she could change your boyfriend's mind, tells you absolutely everything you need to know about this woman. A truly, truly awful person and um yeah once again i think you did the right thing what i will say is is on behalf of your boyfriend what do you even begin to say really if i'm being completely honest but all i'll say is i hope that, that he recovers well and eventually works through this with the help of you your family therapist whatever it seems like he's got a good support group and uh oh, a truly traumatic thing and i hope he gets through it now for our next story of nuclear revenge this one an absolute classic of the subreddit posted four years ago and is one of the most upvoted the most popular stories that has ever been posted a friend set up my dad and he was nearly beaten to death my grandfather got revenge on everyone involved. This isn't my story, but it comes from my dad and other family members who witnessed it. Background. This all went down in the late 1970s when my dad was 17. The area he grew up in was in the UK and was a stereotypical working class town. The part of town my family lived in was run down, full of poor families and had its fair share of crime, but it was close knit and everyone knew everyone. This will be important for later. Now, my dad wasn't the most well-behaved kid and he hated being at school. But aside from a speeding ticket, he'd never been in trouble with the police. He was, and still is, a really talented musician and had a very active social life. For his 17th birthday, one of his friends bought him a leather jacket with a very specific logo on it. We'll call this friend Dave for future reference. According to my dad, it was a rare and quite expensive motorcycle jacket. He was extremely happy that Dave had got it for him. Dave had bought himself the same jacket a while before, and it was a big surprise. My grandmother apparently joked that with the jackets on, they looked like twins, and she wasn't far wrong. 
They had similar features, black hair, and were both well known for being kitted out in motorcycle gear. A few days after my dad's birthday, he was leaving work as a bartender in the town center at around 10 p.m. As he was getting close to where his bike was parked, a gang of five men approached him from behind. The last thing my dad remembers was being smacked over the head and passing out as he hit the floor. These men beat up my dad with bike chains and a crowbar, literally to within an inch of his life. Luckily, two bouncers from a nearby pub heard the commotion and rushed to help. The men ran off and the bouncers called the cops and my dad was taken to hospital. It turned out that Dave had quite a substantial gambling habit and owed a large amount of money to people who you really didn't want to owe money to. They had threatened Dave and told him that they'd be looking for him to teach him a lesson. So, Dave decided to set up my dad to take the beating instead of himself, or at least lessen his chances of taking it. He'd bought my dad the same jacket because these guys knew that that was what he wore when he rode. He then arranged for a guy he knew to find out where my dad left work and call up the loan sharks to let them know where Dave was. What a scumbag. The revenge. My grandfather and grandmother were obviously distraught about this whole thing. The first thought on my grandfather's mind was if my dad would survive. When that was answered, his second was how best to get revenge. A bit of background on my grandfather. He was a lifelong boxer and a career military man. He enlisted at the back end of World War II at 17, stayed in the forces through Korea, and then served in Malaya and Burma as a scout and sniper during the mid to late 1950s. He only reluctantly retired when my dad was little and worked as an engineer after his discharge. This guy was a certified badass, even into his 50s. And although he wasn't the best husband or father at times, he could never stand by and watch his family get hurt. The first move my grandfather made was to call up every ex-service buddy, bouncer, pub landlord, etc. that he knew, and even a few less than legit characters he knew from the pubs. In my town, word traveled fast and my grandfather was well-liked and had a bit of a reputation, so it wasn't long before he had the names and addresses of the five men who'd attacked my dad. Apparently, these guys had been bragging about beating up a defenseless man from behind. These guys were career criminals with violent reputations, but my grandfather really didn't give a dang who or what they were. My grandfather then called up a few of the most dangerous, hardened guys he knew from the service. He explained to them what had happened, and they were all happy to help. One night, the group kicked in the doors of each thug and beat them to a pulp, all five of them. They knew that if they hit one, the others would hear about it and run, so they hit all five of them in one night. My grandfather knew no one would call the police in the area they lived in. Talking to the cops was a big no-no in that area back then, so there was little chance of being caught. All five guys ended up bloody with broken noses, shattered teeth, and the requirement to be fed from a tube by the end of the night. One of them had to be put into a medically induced coma. Of course, the police interviewed all of them in hospital when they sufficiently recovered, but none of them talked, both out of fear of my grandfather and fear they'd be labeled as rats, and nothing came of it. But my grandfather wasn't done there. My grandfather used his connections in the clubs and bars to start spreading rumors about why they'd been beaten up. Soon it had gotten around that these five guys had screwed up and had beaten up the wrong person. Not only that, but they bragged about it and lied to whoever they worked for about it. Not only were they physically broken, but my grandfather ruined their credibility 
so that when they got out, no one, criminal or otherwise, wanted to be associated with them. Once this was all done, my grandfather turned his attention to Dave. He'd specifically left Dave for last, knowing that he would poop himself knowing that my grandfather knew what he'd done. My grandfather, however, was much more subtle in dealing with Dave, as he thought that a simple beating would be too good for him. He waited and asked around, and it turned out that Dave was not only a compulsive gambler, but also had recently turned into a heavy drug addict as well. My grandfather found out who he was buying his drugs from, when he would usually buy and where. He had a buddy of his follow Dave when he went to buy his stuff, follow him to where he was living, and let my grandfather know. My grandfather then called in an anonymous tip that there was a huge drug deal going on at the address and he thought he heard gunshots. He got two of his buddies to do the same. The police investigated, searched the house and caught Dave red-handed with boatloads of drugs in his home as well as counterfeit bills and a ton of other illegal stuff. Dave was charged, denied bail and ended up pleading guilty to all the charges laid against him. My dad could never remember his exact sentence but it was definitely heavy at least 15 years to add to that dave owed a lot of money to a lot of people and let's just say his time in prison was made much worse by this fact my dad never spoke to him again his parents disowned him his girlfriend dumped him he struggled to get a job with his record and when he got out he had to move miles away as no one he knew wanted anything to do with him my dad eventually recovered from his injuries although you can still see various scars on his body from the beating he took My grandfather never told anyone what he'd done until my dad asked him about it when he got really ill in the early 1990s. Dave's life was ruined and out of the five who attacked my dad, three ended up in prison later in life and two ended up dead due to crime. My grandfather passed away in the late 1990s and although my dad and him had their issues, it could never be said that he didn't look out for him when he needed it. Um... Wow, is all I can say after reading that. That was simply stunning. Uh, goodness me. Even what happened in the first instance, what Dave did to you was absolutely shocking. I, honestly, I know, well, this is about your dad, isn't it? I know your dad nearly got killed, but very clever from Dave to, to set your dad up as him. Maybe I shouldn't be saying that, but I was kind of thinking that's pretty genius from Big Dave to do that. Nonetheless, your grandfather's revenge, just like chef's kiss, because not only did he absolutely brutalize these five Donnies that deserve that? But he could have gone one further with Dave, but that would have been the wrong play. What he did in the end was absolutely perfect. You can't just let Dave get away with one beating. You can't. And I, I do think that the killing would have gone too far. So that lovely little middle ground of absolutely destroying his life is a perfect solution. So to your grandfather, I salute you. To Opie, your dad, I say, well, very tough that this happened, but hopefully you feel backed up by your dad and uh yeah overall a brilliant brilliant story with some very very satisfying revenge mess with my kids lose your house i am a 50 year old man and i've got two stepsons who i just call my sons as i've been in their life since they were eight and ten and they're now young men my wife and i made it a point to have a great relationship with their dad jason and made sure he had a chance to be around as much as possible Even staying at our place frequently to be around his boys as he lived over an hour away and couldn't afford to live closer Jason had a crazy ex-girlfriend who tried to claim they were married Variously saying common law or that they were married in secret or married on an indian reservation But he had a restraining order out against her because she was nuts and had tried various ways to screw up his life The ex is a horrible person. She's been arrested several times for forgery and fraud 
She and Jason had a fiery relationship, but he had it in his head that he should make it work as he did like her daughters and grandson. But the ex got him sent to prison for violating his probation when he left the county to go to his mum's funeral and hadn't filed an appropriate form. I am a little unclear on this part, but she played a major role in it. After he got out several months later, she wanted him back and he wasn't having it. He made a clean break, moved to a new town, but she continued to harass him thus leading to the restraining order. She would send texts to people, pretending to be police investigating, saying he was drunk driving or taking drugs or pretending to be friends and family to spread rumors and hurt him. She even sent texts to my kids from burner phones, pretending to be other family or friends, saying awful things about their dad. Now, Jason died unexpectedly of a heart attack and it was a shock to all of us. He was finally living in peace had great relationships with friends and his sons and was the happiest he'd ever been. He didn't have much. He lived in a single wide trailer. A friend had let him stay in for free. Some boxes of tools, old comics, video games, D&D books and modules, mementos from his time in the Marines and an old 2009 pickup, which on several occasions he'd promised my oldest son. Let's call him Paul. Jason didn't have a will and my wife became the executor of the estates because at the time of death, both the sons were minors and sole heirs. We packed up the things out of Jason's trailer and took the truck which had Jason's name on the title, but had to wait for the death certificate to retitle it in Paul's name. But the ex called Jason's sister demanding the truck, saying it was hers and posting on Facebook that she was reporting it as stolen, etc., which really angered me. After we got the death certificates, we went to the DMV and found out that she had stolen the title to the truck by forgery, saying she was the only heir and we couldn't transfer the title. My son was driving around with a packet documenting everything in case he was pulled over for driving a stolen vehicle. My son was driving around with a packet documenting everything in case he was pulled over for driving a stolen vehicle. We had to get a lawyer and start a special process that took several months before our director at the DMV fixed it and we were able to title the truck with the ex continuing to threaten and cause problems, making everyone miserable and costing us several thousands in legal fees. Early last year, we got through probate courts. The ex never showed, in spite of saying that she was the wife and sole heir. The court declared the boys as the sole heirs and my wife as executor of the estates in their names. Instead of showing up, the ex sent an email to the court saying she couldn't make it because of work, she doesn't have a job, and that Jason was never around his kids. He didn't miss a single high school football game, home or away, and never missed a home track meet, and that they were just leeching off his SSI for the back child support. She went on with a bunch of other non-relevant stuff just to trash my wife and sons and pretty much said it didn't matter what the judge said that she should get everything. During this time, we found out that Jason's name was on the deed of the ex's house. In order to get a reduction in property taxes because of Jason's disabled veteran status, she had filed papers to put him on the deed, but not the mortgage. If she'd just left my kids alone, we would have let it go. But she'd pushed principal beyond the point of detail. So we filed suit for half the house. The property is worth about $380,000. We went to court-ordered mediation and she rejected a mediated settlement of a fraction of the value which we would have taken. In April, her lawyer dropped her and so she got a continuance on the first hearing. She then claimed that she had found a will from Jason designating her as sole heir in addition to another signed paper that she found as a quick claim deed from Jason for the house. 
I did wonder if it was this or her not paying him which caused him to drop her She was going to go back to probate court to reopen I guess appeal the probate and needed time for that which the judge granted on tuesday We finally went to court on the deed to the house again. She no-showed the judge had inquiries to the probate court and she never filed any papers The trial lasted less than 10 minutes as the judge recorded the facts and awarded the estate half the property They will impanel three lawyers to determine how the property will be sold And she's going to lose her house and for the first time in her miserable life face the consequences of her actions Frick around and find out and there we go. That is the end of that one I've got to say first of all op congratulations for winning the case But I can't help but feel that it's very sad that jason isn't around anymore or indeed wasn't around during the culmination of the story And now to see his kids grow up you and your wife are doing an amazing thing It's such a shame that that woman is just knocking about. I mean, why is she trying to fake a marriage that never happened? I mean, I know why but come on That's so easy to see through with just a little bit of questioning, right? Do you have the papers? No. Have you forged some things in the past? Yes. Hmm. Maybe you're lying. Tough one. Uh, but yeah, overall, it's a shame that Jason isn't around. But yes, as I said, you and your wife are doing an amazing job for these kids. I will just say, though, it might be worth getting some form of protection in place because I feel like now that she has literally nothing, and again, not your fault that she has nothing, you completely gave her the option, right? And as you said, if she hadn't messed with you, you wouldn't have messed with her house. I feel like there's a chance she may now come after you because at this point, what has she got to lose? So as long as you have some form of plan in place, if that is to happen or some protection order or some sort of legality, that would be good and make me feel better. And um, I'll be able to sleep at night until you do that. I'm going to be a little bit worried because, uh, yeah, I feel like she might be hot on your tails quite soon. But nonetheless, great revenge, very much deserved. Now moving on to our next revenge story of this episode. Now this one is an absolute classic posted over six years ago. One of my favorite posts of all time. Can't you just unload around me? So this happened earlier today and was too perfect to not share with you guys. I work in construction as the foreman for a new house build. The location is kind of strange. The house is 250 feet up a hill via a footpath only. All of our materials have to come up that footpath by hand. It's a pain in the butt to manually carry, quite literally, an entire house up this hill. One of our saving graces is having the two parking spots on the street at the bottom of this hill marked with official no parking signs. Unfortunately, there is an elementary school about half a block away, and the parents of children seem to regularly, at least twice a day, think it's okay to park in our spots. Now, I consider myself a reasonable person, so if someone is parked in the spots and we don't have a delivery or need to park a truck, I'll let it go. But if we need the spots and there's someone parked there, I will ask them to move. Nicely, and most of the time they do so immediately. Until today i get a phone call from the lumber delivery truck that is en route to our location he says he'll be there in about two or three minutes i let him know that i'll meet him at the street and make sure he has space to park he's carrying all of the material to frame the roof of our house which is a lot of really big lumber and will take easily an hour to bring up the hill so naturally i didn't want him parked in the middle of the street with his hazards on for an hour when we have a perfectly good parking spot for him as i begin my trip down the hill i notice there is a school parent sitting in her car idling assuming she's just waiting to pick up her child i walk up to her car and politely let her know that she is parked in a no parking zone and we really needed to clear it to park a delivery truck but she scoffs at me and rudely states back i'll just be a few minutes and your truck isn't here 
Take a chill pill, dude. Before I can respond, a giant lumber truck comes around the corner and I wave to him and then gesture towards him to the woman in the car who's now put her window back up to ignore me. I put on my best customer service smile and wave at her through the window. She puts it down halfway and angrily shouts, what? By now, the truck has pulled up alongside her car and I politely ask her again with a stronger tone of voice to move her vehicle, reminding her that she's illegally parked in a tow away zone. Then she gives me this wonderful idea. She says, can't you guys just unload around me? Jesus, it's not that hard. I give her another smile and walk away. A brilliant plan forming in my head. I instruct the delivery driver to park as closely to her as possible and block her in with the porta potty that is at one end of our reserve spots and the parked car that is parked just adjacent to our spots on the other end. He smiles because he immediately gets what I'm trying to do and proceeds to expertly block this lady and her car into a little two parking spot jail. We unstrap the lumber and my guys begin humping material up the hill. Meanwhile, I call the police parking enforcement to let them know the situation. At this point in time, I wasn't trying to get her in trouble. I just wanted a record of why we were blocking part of the street so that we don't get in trouble with the city. The very friendly traffic officer lets me know that she can be there in about 30 minutes and deal with the situation for me. Wonderful. As we continue to unload lumber, the child of the parent shows up. And wouldn't you know it, mum is just now realizing that the lumber truck is parked so close that she can't get out of her driver door to meet her kid. She awkwardly clambers across the inside of her car and stumbles out the passenger door, shooting glaring looks at me and the truck driver in the process. She loads her kid into the back and then begins to realize that she has no way of leaving. She comes storming up to myself and the driver and states, I'm in a big hurry. You need to move your dang truck right now so I can go. Before I can respond, the driver gets a grin on his face and says, Mom, in order to unload the lumber on the truck, we had to unstrap it. And per our company policy, I'm not allowed to move the truck with any unsecured load on it. Sorry. This sends her into near aneurysm levels of blood pressure. Meanwhile, I can barely contain my laughter. Screw your policy. I have somewhere to be. She barks back at him. At this point, with impeccably convenient timing, the parking enforcement officer shows up and parks behind the truck. She doesn't see the officer arrive. And while the officer is still getting out of her vehicle, I just casually say, can't you just pull out around it? It's not that hard. With the biggest poop eating grin I've ever had, I watch as she realizes that I just used her line on her. Screw you, she yells and storms back to her car and angrily clambers back in through the passenger door and into the driver's seats. At this point, the officer is walking up to myself and the driver, but before she can even introduce herself, the mum in the car slams it into reverse and stomps on the gas, crashing into our porta potty and knocking it over. Then she throws the car into drive and tries to mount the curb and drive on the sidewalk. The officer, driver, and I are staring in disbelief as she gets halfway over the curb and gets stuck. I can hear her screaming obscenities over the idling truck from inside her car. The officer promptly walks up to the door of the car and orders her out. My favorite part of the entire thing is watching her face go to shock as she realized she just did all of that in front of a police officer. She gets slapped in cuffs as the parking officer calls for a second unit and she's promptly sat on the very curb she tried to drive over. She sits on the curb yelling to the now two officers about how we told her she could stay there and that we never asked her to move. 
The traffic officer responds that she was the one who was originally called when she first refused to move and that she already knows what's going on. While myself and the driver are giving a report to the second officer, my guys finish moving the remainder of the lumber and the driver finishes his statement and takes off to go back to the yard. By the end of the ordeal, she was arrested, charged with child endangerment. Her kid was in the back of the car the whole time. Reckless driving, destruction of property, the porta potty, and driving on a suspended license. On top of all of that, she also got her car towed. The kid went home with his grandma and she went to spend some quality time in a cell. I never expected her to actually heed my advice to just pull out around it, but I think next time she'll probably think twice about parking in a tow away zone if she ever gets a license again. And there we go, guys. Hopefully you now see why this is one of my favorite stories that has ever been posted on Reddit. I mean, that's just brilliant. I just got the picture of her in my head. Her in her car, just completely sandwiched in. Just beautiful, beautiful stuff. And ultimately, if she just followed the rules and not parked somewhere that literally says no parking, none of this would have happened. Completely her fault. What you guys did was not illegal. I mean, she literally said, can't you just unload around me? You did just that. Fine with me. And uh, yeah, I mean, I do feel for her kid because, yeah, reversing into a portaloo and then trying to smash through a curb and maybe through the van as well. I don't know, through the lorry. Pretty dangerous stuff. I was a bit surprised when I saw that charge, child endangerment. But then thinking about it, it makes complete sense. And uh, yeah, I hope the kid's all right. What's amazing about this story is that in every single paragraph, there was a moment in which this Karen could easily have just been like, okay, you know what? I'm done. I've made mistakes here. I apologize. Not even apologize. Just say, fine, I was wrong. And just move or continue on with her day and not cause this terrible outcome. Every single moment, though, that she was offered that chance, and you offered her multiple, OP, she said, you know what? No, I'm doubling down. I'm going again. And she kept making the story and her situation and her kid's situation, sadly, worse and worse at every moment. That is the problem with these people. They have chances to get out of it. It starts off pretty chill. Please, can you just move out of the spot? It's no parking. Oh, yeah. Annoying for me because I would like to pick up my kid, but I'll do it. You have another chance. We're not going to go to the police. Just please move. Oh, we can load around you. Are you 100% sure? You see what I mean? At every moment, she could have just said, you know what? You're right. I'm gone. But she didn't. And that was her own downfall. Keep screwing over your group members. This teacher is tired of your trash. This is my first post here. And for reasons that will soon become obvious, this subreddit speaks to the depths of my soul. It's also a very long one because I want you to delight in my destruction. The particular flavor of this revenge comes from the fact that everything that goes down is the result of a domino effect that leaves devastation in its wake. My backstory. I've been teaching for many years, but it's important to understand that in my first year of teaching, I got put on blast by an elite group of entitled parents and their entitled kids. Not a week went by without someone either demanding my job, trying to undermine me, or just calling me a POS. I nearly quit halfway through the first semester. The verbal and emotional abuse was so bad. This was at a school in a tough area. So I was accused of racism constantly for asking kids to stop talking. I was ripped into for giving failing grades for missing work and even enforcing the rules in the student parent handbook got me in hot water. My principal reprimanded me for being a negative influence on the school and I was told that I needed to let more rules slide because he was tired of hearing from parents. I would have parents just show up unannounced to sit in on my lessons and then tell me I was a trashy educator a bad human being, etc. I have plenty of horror stories from that school alone, but the point I want to make is that this experience defined the kind of teacher I became 
going forward to my next school. I needed to be that person who was untouchable because I needed to focus on the one job that mattered, teaching kids. So my next school was in a fairly affluent area. It wasn't uncommon for me to find out that my students' parents made millions, which brought its own unique set of problems. However, my new principal was super supportive of me as long as I followed the school's handbook to the letter because by doing so, I was in line with the school's philosophy and protected by law. We seriously had parents filing frivolous lawsuits all the dang time. The school had long ago learned that caving to parents' demands spilled blood in the water and brought the rest of the sharks in droves. My first year at this new school was successful for many reasons, but primarily because the school culture was easily adapted to. By planning ahead, I was able to head off 99% of all negative parents at the pass. The few times a parent tried to rip into me at conferences, I ripped back so hard that I developed a reputation amongst the kids and parents as someone you couldn't screw with. Everything I did was in line with the rules and any attempt to take me down got stonewalled by my principal who would have to say, Mr. OP is following school policy, so I'm afraid the ultimate decision is his. No joke, I had some parents in tears because their kid could no longer get an A in my class. I wasn't the teacher who wanted to destroy kids, I just wanted them to be accountable, and sometimes that meant letting them fail. Needless to say, this job became a lot of fun, because instead of waiting to be ambushed by parents, I could work on making my class fun for my students, while still teaching them something. I made ironclad rules for the classroom that brooked little argument, and would adapt the following year to make it harder for students or parents to ruin my day. I have many stories like this, but this is one of my favorites. So, the backstory. The year this happened, I taught a high school class with grades 9 to 12. That's 14 to 18 year olds for you overseas guests. My class wasn't necessary to graduate, but did count as a core requirement. One of my beginning of the year rules was, I never want to hear, when will we ever need this because you didn't have to sign up for this class. How I structure my class is that I try to make students accountable for their own actions. My class was built so that it had something to offer everybody. If you tried your best, you were guaranteed a C. If you worked really hard, you could get a B or an A. I would bust my butt to help a student with any reasonable request. The best example of this was a student working hard on an assignment who said, I think I understand it now, but I can't turn it in on time. To which I answered, then turn it in tomorrow for full credit. This is how hard work pays off. Other than a few hard deadlines in my class, I would do whatever it took to see you learn the material. Now, screw around in my class? Well, I've already found ways to run circles around the pathetic excuses you throw at your parents for your awful performance. It sounds callous, but I was the teacher who would stay for 90 minutes after school to help you catch up, to help fix your project for another class, or even to listen to you cry about your parents' divorce. If I caught you goofing in class instead of doing your work, my rule was that at least 70% of class time was intended for homework, quizzes, etc. I would warn you a couple of times. Email your parents and then wait and see if they even gave a dang. If they didn't, I would let you keep digging that hole until you were hip deep in water and begging for a ladder. And then I would toss you a rope instead. You could still climb it if you tried hard enough, but a lot of kids would just cry until that hole caved in and buried them. I also utilized my school's online grading slash assignment system for nearly all of my assignments, which meant I could document when a student looked at the assignment, how long it took them, etc. All of this allowed me to see what my students were doing, when they did it, and also if they were plagiarizing. 
this was one of the tools that helped me make important decisions about leniency and also allowed me to say things at conferences such as of course the test was hard your child didn't attempt the nine homework assignments until 11 p.m the night before the test being able to prove that a student wasn't trying made it impossible for blame to be laid unfairly at my feet it also meant the worst kids avoided my class bonus however this year something magical happened Every other year, I would get a wave of kids who just wanted to screw around and blame everyone else for doing poorly. At the end of the year, students would talk terribly about me, my class sizes would drop the following year, then I'd receive high praise from those kids, so everyone would sign up, so on and so on. But this year, not only did I get a giant wave of knuckleheads, but they came with parents who loved to make trouble. I'd already heard tales of some of these parents. Other teachers were just dying to hear stories about our interactions because these parents were very much entitled. They would name drop lawyers when they didn't get their way, try to badger teachers into giving their kids extra credit, and would largely deny any wrongdoing on their kids' part. These were the parents who would get called in because their student was busted cheating, then accuse the teacher of making the class too hard, therefore validating their student's need to cheat. So about these knuckleheads, it was a group of roughly seven senior boys who all shifted their schedules to be in the same period with each other. The other teachers could not believe that I had all of them at the same time, but I just shrugged it off. Every week, the staff lounge was dying to know how I dealt with their shenanigans, but for the most part, I'd shut down most of their trash from day one. I actually got along very well with them, despite their constant goofing, because they'd mastered the ability to appear busy and didn't distract my other kids. Then came the first group project. My class size was just right for seven groups of four to form. The idiot collective formed two groups of four by pulling in a kid who'd been absent on the first day of the project. These two groups crashed and burned on this project super hard for several reasons. But the biggest were that A, they screwed around during class time, and B, put off a two-week assignment until the weekend before, and then dumped all the work on everybody else, which resulted in everybody doing minimal efforts. I handed out their terrible grades and was immediately pulled into parent conferences with several of them, one at a time, obviously. Every meeting was the same. My kid did all the work, so he doesn't deserve a bad grade. Or... My kid didn't understand the assignments, to which I handed over my hyper-specific rubric, which is a checklist for how I grade things. I never wanted to be accused of grading based on not liking a kid. These largely went like this. My kid did all the work, and I don't think it's fair it should hurt his grade, an entitled parent would say. Well, here is the work your student turned in. I'd then hand it over. Here is my rubric, which I printed and emailed to your student the day the project started. Then I'd hand that over. As you can see, I've itemized the grading for ease of use. I'd be happy to go over the grade your student earned. The entitled parent would then read through all the evidence and look at their kid. Where are the missing parts? Uh, my group members were responsible for that. Then I would say, I can't grade what I never received, so I can't reasonably just raise your kid's grade. Sorry. Now, good news for all my students. I make assignments worth more throughout the semester with the idea that kids who screw up early on can make it up later by working hard. I seed extra credit throughout the semester and all of these parents are disgruntled but happy to hear that their entitled embryo can still get an A in my class. Now, the end result of these meetings was that it clearly wasn't my fault. Remember, I had all this data to prove that I made every effort to contact everybody, etc. So, it must be the other kid's fault. 
So these parents would all decide that their perfect angel is no longer allowed to work with their previous group mates. Like a cancer, this failure of friends distributes through the rest of the class. Like the genius that I am, I make my students write a group contract for every project that details who does what and when it is due. Now, why is this important? Because the contract provides me the documentation necessary to allow me to dismiss a bad group member and give them a zero without their parent trashing all over my day. So here is where the problem begins manifesting. These seniors begin bouncing from group to group like cancerous ping pong balls wreaking havoc. I let students choose their groups. So these seniors are desperately integrating with anybody that will have them. Because of my class size, every group has at least one coddled child to deal with. And these children just end up rotating until all of my students have worked with one of these seniors at some points. Now I'm getting constant complaints from parents of other kids about these boys. Their kid wanted a good grade, which means they ended up doing all the work while the senior slacked. This is usually after the fact, at which time I bring up, I would love to yank that leech out of your grade pool, but you have to use the contracts. Students don't want to say anything because they fear retribution from the seniors, but I can't do anything because I'll be accused of harassment. The contract can provide me with the leverage I need to prove that these kids were doing no work because these seniors have been playing their parents for years. I make my class utilize Google Docs because the changes are timestamps. No joke, I've had students produce all the work the morning of a parent meeting to try and lie their way out and make me look like a POS, but that timestamp is a godsend. Luckily, my class is balanced. A trashy group mate can make things hard, but not undoable. And parents are appeased that I have an out for their kid, but disappointed that their kid doesn't use it. Every time I announce a group project is on the way, some of these seniors sucker up to the other kids to the point that it is expected that a spot will be made for them. I'm talking buying kids lunch, bringing them gifts, etc. Seriously, the day before a group project starts, all of the seniors now sit at separate tables from each other so that they could pull the I'm already here, let's be in a group card, which works most of the time. The strain on class morale is difficult, but I'm biding my time. The other students are grabbing at extra credit opportunities constantly so that their grade can absorb the blow. And parents' complaints are completely mitigated because I'm still offering every chance for success. My principal has a copy of my syllabus in his computer so that he can quote student policies that the parents signed off on. Not uncommon for him to hear, I don't read that so it doesn't apply. But he then reminds them that the clause above the signature line says, my signature denotes that I've read this document in its entirety and agreed to abide by all the rules or something similar. And that this should be a lesson to the parent and the student that when you sign something, you should read the fine print. Note, if you ever become a teacher, find an awesome boss like this and stick by their side. So, the setup. In total, I have seven slothful seniors, but I shall name the worst of these Larry, Curly, and Mo. The fallout affects all of them, but these three are the ones whose parents have a hard-on for making trouble. Every time they bully a teacher into compliance, I imagine they sit around a smoking room with cigars and cognac, laughing at how they got their way yet again with a lowly teacher. I know that anything I do will be heavily scrutinized once the grades start falling, and I need to be able to shrug it off because I've got other stuff to do, and I refuse to be the smiling topic of discussion in their celebratory circle jerk. However, a special note about Larry. Since he turned 18, his parents now travel non-stop and are impossible to reach. Larry is now just a huge douche because his parents no longer care about what he does. I closely monitor their grades in my class, 
but also in others. Now, this may sound sketchy, but I routinely do this with any of my students who struggle with the material so that I can identify if the issue is my class or all of their classes. Students have been known to fake their grades using inspect elements, and I got tired of hearing, but they have A's in their other classes because then I look like a POS. Anyway, after a check, I speak with the other teachers. It isn't hard to find out that these boys are doing minimal work in other classes. And I actually discover that Larry has been finding ways to get other kids to do the work for him and then disseminating it among his friends. Other teachers have been bullied into lowering test percentages in their class. And guess what? He and his friends are enrolled in his classes. Despite bombing these tests, homework and project grades give them a comfortable cushion so that most of them are floating at low Bs. I can't prove this. They're using Snapchat. But when I bring it up with their teachers, the teachers don't feel like trying to prove it and duke it out with the parents. Now, they are gaming other classes for minimal efforts. However, their only recourse in my class is to keep rotating through groups and leeching off of their hard work to maintain Cs and Bs and the other kids are too nervous to utilize the group contract to get them fired. Remember how I mentioned that I steadily increased the value of my assignments to keep kids working and give them a chance to fix their grades? So here is me on a random day in class. Hey everybody, I was looking in the schedule and realized that your last project before finals may stress you out unnecessarily. Would anybody mind if I dropped it? My class, who are tired of getting banged on group assignments, say, Nope, drop it. Best teacher ever. Okay then. Well, just so you know, I reply, I'm going to move our next project back a couple of weeks and extend the deadline by a week. Also, since I cancelled the last project, this means that the next project will now be worth roughly 20% of your final grade. So do your best. Screwing this up could kill your grade. My class, whatever.jpg. So in one step, I have inflated this assignment and also moved it. I send out an email to parents and students, letting them know about the change to the syllabus and the assignments. I get no responses other than happiness that I'm removing stress from the end of the semester, etc. I actually did this primarily because another teacher, who was also a huge douchebag, plunked down a monster project that same week and I knew it would burn out my students prior to finals, so I figured a break was in order. Win-win for me, really. Now, why did I move it? Maniacallaughter.mp4 The Friday before the project started, I announced at the start of class, Okay, I'm introducing the project now so that you can get into groups today and we can do it first thing Monday morning, without delay, since this project is so important. This announcement elicits a room full of poop-eating grins. Why? It was senior ditch day. Now, our school didn't condone a ditch day, so the kids tried their best to keep it a secret, but I found out a month in advance. All seven of these kids, therefore, were absent from class, which meant that I had just given the entire room freedom from these deadweights. Immediately, groups are formed, and even better, I had a couple of kids transfer out my class at semester, which meant, numbers-wise, these knuckleheads will have to work on this last group project together in two groups. I emphasized that everyone needed to get to class as soon as possible so that they could start as soon as attendance was called. My original intention was to light a giant fire under all seven of these chumps to get them to actually put in the effort they'd neglected to do all year. Most of them are grades in the low C range, except for one in the low Bs. As a bonus to all my students, I put an extra credit portion on this project so that they could recoup their early semester losses but also allow these seniors to do very well if they put in the efforts. 
this wasn't meant to be a revenge tale but an attempt to give them one last lesson in responsibility. Before the end of the day, I send out a parent-student notification that the project has been started and that any absent students needed to contact their classmates to establish groups before Monday morning. This was important, as you'll see. I'm sure you can guess what happened next. And guys, that is where I'm going to have to leave it for the end of part one. As you can see by the length of this episode already, there's over half of this story still to come. That's going to be published tomorrow if you're watching this on the day this goes live. Or it may well already be up. I mean, if you're not watching it on the day it goes live, it is already up. Check down below in the description or on screen somewhere right now if you're watching on YouTube. If there's a link there, it will also be in the end screen. Click it, because that is how you continue this story. But for now, wow, I need to give my immediate comments because this has been set up so well. I do apologize, a little bit of a cliffhanger, but uh, wow, so far, so good. I just want to say to OP, like obviously we're not going to know exactly what the revenge is going to be at this stage, but you're just a very good teacher, aren't you? You don't take any trash from anyone. Everything you do is to perfection. It's all set out. It's all meticulously planned. And it just means that because of your bad experience in the past, I guess, there is absolutely no way you're ever going to be caught out by anyone. Students, parents, even your own principal. I mean, they've got nothing on you. You just know exactly what you're doing. It's brilliant to see. I wish my teachers were a bit more like this. So then, getting right back into the story immediate fallouts the next monday the seniors come traipsing in seconds before the bell to discover that there are only two tables to sit at whatever they take their seats i say after attendance okay everybody has a copy of the rubric so go ahead and get started the rest of the class immediately pulls out the rubric the seniors though look around frantically the seniors quickly realize that they've been played and the arguing starts first thing that happens is that larry curly and mo decide that they now belong with whoever they happen to be sitting with and scoot their chairs over to sit with different tables i catch this right away and tell them that the groups are already at maximum size four people per group the other four seniors are already fighting with each other because they know that none of them will actually do any work larry who thinks he's god's gift to everybody tries to sweet talk me and his group into special privileges and allowing a group of five now, I see some of the other kids wavering, and I know that Larry is putting pressure on them to argue his case. But I designed this project for specifically four people, and I had a job for each one. However, I extended a separate offer. I will let you join, but since there will be five of you, I expect double the work. Literally, I told them they would have to do the project twice. Larry tries to argue, but I point out the roles I have established and inform him that if four people could do it once, Having five should make it easier to do it twice. Sounds like a bad move on my part, but I've now intimidated the other kids into saying, heck no, and even have them put it to a vote. Unsurprisingly, Larry is the only one who votes that this is a good idea, and when the other kids catch wind of my offer, they physically shoo off the other seniors trying to pull this deal as well. You will all be delighted to hear that the rest of the period for my seniors is spent arguing over who will work with who. They end up forming three groups and I nod my head, make sure they have the rubric and then wish them the best of luck. Being the smart teacher that I am, I email Curly's parents and Mo's mummy that they have chosen to work with each other. Mo's mummy shows up to argue with me all the time, but has quickly learned I won't take her trash. At a previous meeting, she even laid into Mo and told him, I'm tired of fighting all these battles with your teachers and I'm starting to think that you're the problem but I suspect that that was for show. Curly's parents email me back and say they will make sure Curly writes a group contract. 
You see, Curly has sold himself as the best student ever, and clearly he will do the work and fire his classmates. Mo's mummy immediately requests a meeting with me. Per school policy, I do not have to respond to an email for 48 hours. I wait until hour 47 and email a non-committal, I would love to meet, when are you available? And wait for a response. I then wait for another 48 hours to inform her of a time the following week that works for me. Now, some of the other senior parents have emailed me angrily demanding why I let their kids choose to work with the bad kids again. I had to inform them I didn't expect all of them to be absent. Immediately, some of my seniors get burned at home because they ditched. Just try to help them pass, which I agree to. Some of them need this class for graduation after all. Mo's mummy, on the other hand, shows up ready to wage war. She starts by demanding that I put Mo in a different group. I decline because the project has now been going on for a week and that wouldn't be fair. She demands that I add him to another group though. They're all full though and students have already done the lion's share of the work. She then demands that I let him work by himself with an extension. I gladly offer him an extension and slide a copy of the rubric over to him and he goes white. At this point, he knows that he's never planning to do any of the work. In fact, I know that his group hasn't even started. I've got a copy of their group contract, which was hastily scribbled in pencil with no due dates on it. He starts arguing with his mum that he'd rather work with his friends and that he's upset that he got stuck in this situation. Contemplating this, she accuses me of deliberately waiting until that day to screw the seniors over. After all, it was a school-sanctioned event and I'm being a douche about it and she'll go to the board with her story. Wrong. The joy I get from all of my prep work is shutting down BS like this. All seven of the seniors hung out on ditch day at her house and told her that the principal had given them the day off. Even better, they called in and pretended to be their own parents so that it was an excused absence. He is immediately busted and his mum flips her switch and jumps all over him. You see, she can keep pressing me on this issue, but I now have evidence that he pretended to be his own dad and that is a suspendable offense. I buy myself into her graces by telling her that I had no idea that senior ditch day was that Friday, but I gave her kid a free extension on the homework that was due because I thought seniors deserve their own traditions, blah, blah, blah. She buys it. Also, I can prove that I emailed him and her and gave them plenty of notice before Monday morning that they needed to pick groups before something like this happened. Obviously, once I found out about ditch day, I tried to give her precious treasure a heads up but I don't know why he didn't take it. She makes him open his email. My email is sitting there unopened and I have won this battle. She thanks me and takes him home. Class morale is super high, unless you're one of the seniors. A week before the project is due, neither group has actually started and the HMS class average is about to hit an iceberg. The project comes due. It comes as no surprise that my enterprising seniors have turned in easily some of the worst work ever. One group got into a text argument the weekend before it was due and made one of the kids do all the work. Mo and Curly are in this group. The other group, with Larry, has also turned in a steaming pile. I make sure to grade these two projects first because I know the fallout is going to be big. All the seniors dropped at least one letter grade. A couple dropped two. This is four weeks before graduation. Larry appears to take his F- in stride. They got something like a 10% on it, so I know he's plotting something. Curly's parents demand a meeting, and so does Mo's mummy. Curly's parents are super upset that they got a bad grade, and demanded to know why. What they didn't know was that I'd already met with the student who did the entire project, poorly, and his parents. 
I informed Curly's parents that I'd seen the text exchange between the seniors that pretty much ended up with, you freaking do it. Curly refused to turn over his phone to his parents for confirmation. I also show them Curly's project and hand over the rubric. Mum and dad are not happy. You see, Curly has been blaming everyone else for his mistakes since the dawn of time, and his parents have bought it completely until today. Dad pointedly asks, which part did you do? And this causes Curly to spout actual tears. I then pull up a spreadsheet of all of the group project scores from the year with no student data and have highlighted his scores, which are among the worst. The purpose of this was to use data to prove that their son, frankly, never does the work. Curly is absolutely destroyed by this. His parents kick him out of the conference because they're tired of his excuses and ask me what they can do. I tell them I'd be happy to offer one-on-one tutoring and that he can still pass the class if he does his homework and gets a B on the next exam. They agree to this, we all shake hands, and they leave. Curly's story largely ends here. He never shows up to tutoring, and I email his parents. After three emails, his dad finally responds with, His mum and I have decided that he needs to learn to be an adult and are leaving him to his own devices. Thank you for your efforts. Curly will spend the rest of the semester doing little to no work. Because he's grounded at home, he's now just watching YouTube videos on his phone during school. The ripple effect is glorious. Because now, Curly is doing this in all of his classes. I speak with his teachers and they all email that he's quit doing work in class and get the same reply I did rather than the vehement responses they're used to. When Curly fails his classes, he still graduates. But his parents have informed him that they are no longer paying for his college and it's time to get a job. Mo's mummy flips her lid and demands answers. Unfortunately, Mo is in the same group as Curly and she gets the same answers from me. Strangely enough, once she's exhausted every effort and attempt to somehow blame me for this, she admits that she knew Mo was part of bullying the lone senior and that he should be ashamed of himself. She deliberately tried to play me, but outed herself once she knew that I already knew everything. Super annoying, but I do agree to help tutor him one-on-one, which makes her happy. Long-term fallouts. Mo's mummy is emailing me every few days now. Is my son doing his work? Did he get help with his homework, etc.? Non-stop, but she knows better than to fight with me. Larry is unusually chipper and is no longer doing his work. I found out that Larry is supposedly going to a college where he just needs to maintain his GPA over a super low number. He claims an F in my class won't change anything, so I make sure he doesn't distract the others. Mo shows up only occasionally, but strangely enough, Larry pops in just to say hi whenever Mo is getting help. I can't fathom why he does this, but suspect he's up to something and already have a backup plan in place. You see, Mo's mummy is nuts, and I make sure that there's always another person in the room with me when I tutor him. Anyway, Mo's mummy is constantly checking in. I start waiting 48 hours between emails, because I can, and she starts dropping by in person, unannounced, to check in on him. But really me. She's been acting cagey lately, and I'm starting to suspect something. It's freaking Larry. Larry is a friend of Mo's, so he's been in her home, feeding her made-up stories to convince her that I've been emotionally abusing Mo when other students aren't around. Stuff like I was calling him the R-word after school, etc., and then telling her, you could even have the school check the cameras to see that I'm there. This starts a whole thing where Mo's mum is now demanding answers from admin. But Mr. OP is smart. The admin asks me about details regarding my interactions with Mo, and I end up sitting down with my principal, Mo, and Mo's mummy. She details that Mo is struggling, 
might not graduate and that she believes that i've singled her kid out for abuse and wants his grade raised you see mo is dumb and lazy and his mum is just as bad when larry went to her with his story she never bothered talking about it with her own son he just agreed and went along with it so i asked mo point blank to please describe what has been said during our sessions and then offer to leave the room so that he can tell the principal without me there she tells me to stay because she wants me to hear from her son what i've done to him what neither of them knew was that i was a mentor teacher that meant i had a first year teacher as my mentee not a student teacher but a new hire that works with a veteran teacher to learn the ropes of our school and i had her working on grades and such in my room after school you need so many contact hours on the days i agreed to meet mo she was young so mo thought she was another student and never questioned it and couldn't even remember that she was in there my principal already had statements from her detailing my interactions with mo and mo was unable to give any actual details and suddenly forgot what had been said to him this lands her in hot water with admin and mo's mummy blames the whole thing on larry and becomes visibly upset that she fell for such a stupid ruse this results in an email cautioning teachers from being alone in a room with either student suddenly after school help evaporates for both but hey i always have someone in my room so whatever after that meeting larry is now suddenly super concerned about his grade i rationalized that he was hoping to burn me out of my job and then use the fallout to get a free passing grade obviously it doesn't work so screw larry i have kids who actually want to succeed my free days are now on days i know he works and he never shows up for tutoring anyway now that other teachers are hesitant to meet with him he's unable to cut deals to raise those grades either seriously teachers fell for his change of heart spiel every semester most mum makes a last ditch effort and tries to convince me that the parents of the seniors have scheduled a meeting with my boss to have me fired for giving their kids a bad grade and that she would be willing to put in a good word for me if i meet with her first i'm sitting next to the principal when i get this email through an app on my cell phone and he has no idea what she's talking about i tell her that i'd be happy to meet everybody but that i would probably eat my lunch during such a meeting and that i hoped people didn't mind the smell of fish i get a no seriously they're threatening to sue you but i feigned stupidity and informed her that surely i couldn't be sued for eating fish during a meeting she now realizes i give zero f's about anything and can't be threatened again there's nothing she can do because i'm simply following policy the last few weeks are frantic for these seniors one by one they fall because they've done little to no work for a couple of years now and they have no idea how to apply themselves other teachers are emboldened by how hard i shut them down and finally hold them accountable a few of them just barely manage d's in my class the rest fail i get a few last second squeaks of what can i do to raise my grade but have now documented that none of them attempted the extra credit assignments and that that was their chance it's hard for a parent to trash on you when you can prove you actually try to give their student extra credit and can then prove they never opened the assignment online these guys are now failing some of their other classes a couple have breakdowns in my class and leave crying their friendships are fracturing with each other because they now all hate each other for what happened which they'll get over during the summer my last test came and i made it an online multiple choice test it was easy enough to have the questions and answers shuffled in random order meaning they couldn't cheat off each other you see i knew for a long time they'd sit next to each other to try and cheat on the exam and larry had blown a ton of money on a tutor to try and carry his friends this though throws them all off 
And when Mo's mummy accuses me again of trying to trick her kid with a much harder test, it was easy enough to shoo her away with a simple email. Larry passes the exam, but his grade moves up to a meager D minus. Finally, the results. Of these seven seniors, one didn't graduate and had to transfer schools. His parents were embarrassed that they paid to fly the whole family out for a graduation that he didn't get to take part in. Two of the seniors lost all of their scholarships and could no longer attend the schools they wanted. Their fallback plan was to attend the same school together and become roommates, which they did with three of the other seniors, including Mo. I do have some other stories because I still work at this school and occasionally hear from the kids who graduated. Larry's college was not happy with his final GPA. I'm not sure what his long game was, but it sucked. The college kicked him out before he could even start, and I found out his huge web of lies extended to his parents too. He toured Europe over the summer and tried to surprise his parents by coming home instead of going to school. Apparently, they kicked him out immediately after because they were selling their house to get a condo somewhere else. Remember, they travel for work all the time now, so wanted to downgrade. Last I heard, he made up a story that he joined the military but got released due to a made-up illness. I say made up because I heard this story from three different people and each one was given a different disease. Curly's parents relented and decided to pay for Curly to go to college after all. Curly got kicked out halfway through the year though, got busted more than once for underage consumption, and they then kicked into the curb after living at home for a year and refusing to get a job. Last I heard, he works in a vape shop. Mo went to school and used his book smarts to try and pay other kids to do his work for him. His mummy is rich. When that failed, he faked his grades to get his mum to keep footing the bill. Eventually, the school kicked him out and he moved back home. The story his mummy told a friend of hers, who I ran into at a school function, was that he decided he'd rather be an entrepreneur than go to college and that he bought a drone to film weddings with. Last I heard, he was acting as a distributor for his weed dealer, but had moved up to selling acid on the side. His mummy thinks he works weddings. One senior went to college with his friends and immediately realized he needed to change. He quit hanging out with his friends and, last I heard, graduated with honors in a lucrative field. He emailed me once to thank me for challenging him in high school because it prepared him for college. So that was nice. So that's it. That's the end. Thanks for reading. And if you ever had a teacher you loved, send them an email. We love hearing from our children. Wow. And there we go. That is the end. What a story. Again, immediately, I just want to say to OP, the way you deal with these people is just phenomenal. I, I don't know how you do it. You just do it with such calmness. And you just know exactly what you're doing at all moments. I guess this just proves that if you really are careful in your, in your day-to-day workings and you back yourself up, and you make sure that you always have evidence and you're just a good person that that does things to the letter of the law, then you can always cover yourself no matter what happens. I will say the way you handle the parents in particular, Mo's mummy, is just actually brilliant because I can I can 100% think of a lot of my teachers in the past that have definitely backed down to entitled parents like that. But the way you just say, nope, you're wrong because of this, 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 and this. And by the way, I have all the evidence right here. It's phenomenal. What I love about this story the most is that you've done all of this, not because you want to make a point or because you really don't like these, these students. You wish they worked harder and you want them to fail because they're disrupting the rest of your class. No, that isn't the point. That's very clear to see. You're giving them, if anything, not just education, but life lessons. I mean, that is epitomized by the email you received by one of those seniors. What if you had gone easy on them and just said, oh, you know what? You're not doing any of the work, but fine, you can pass, get into college. That's not going to help them in the long run, is it? They're going to get to college and 
just absolutely fail and then be in a worse spot because you know they're even further on in their life and education and yeah the failings in college are obviously more serious than they would have been previously so the fact that you did all of this at that stage in their lives as one of the seniors has said to you is a great thing and ultimately i think in the end they all will probably look back and think yeah that teacher op was pretty good and we messed about my dad who is trans has discovered how to beat transphobes in the south we're currently in the south visiting family when we were at a restaurant my dad who is female to male had to go to the bathroom i'm still not entirely sure how but a guy in there determined that he was trans and went shouting to the barman to kick my dad out my dad instead of trying to win that argument in a bar full of southerners decided to go the complete other direction he channeled his inner southern righteous fury and went off on that man for accusing him of being a transgender demanded that he be kicked out and called the guy an agent of satan long story short it worked got the other guy and his family kicked out and got a free beer for his troubles i thought this sub would appreciate that well there we go that is absolutely genius now of course not the ideal way of going about it i mean ideally you'd be in a spot where you can just say to the barman or landlord or people in there by the way someone is being transphobic to me can we get them out but yeah as you say in southern america maybe that's not possible and um, if you want to get someone kicked out and you don't really mind about the ethics of how you do it then sure this was great. I mean, it worked a treat. Fair play. I mean, it's literally one of the biggest Una reverse cards I've ever seen. No, how dare you call me trans. The fact that you've even done that is punishable by getting out of the bar. Great stuff. Refuse my mother entry to your horse track? Don't expect access to our personal road. My granddad used to own a piece of land next to a horse racetrack. Their land almost surrounded my granddad's, except for him having access to a heavily trafficated public road. The racetrack was laid out in such a way that their exercise track was placed north of my granddad's land, while the main track with the stadium was placed to the south. Way back when the racetrack was built, they'd asked my granddad if they could transport their horses across his land. There was already a maintenance road in place, and as they only moved their horses, he didn't really mind, as they also supported the local village. As a small thank you for this, they allowed him and his guests to watch the races for free. Normally, it would cost around five US dollars in our local currency. Not that much, but it allowed him to take me and all my cousins to watch the horses for free. Anyhow, fast forward a couple of years and my granddad passed away. My mother, who inherited the land, tried to bring her grandchild, my niece, to the racetrack to see the horses, just as my granddad used to. At the counter, she is told that she has to pay for admission. Not really that big of a deal, as she thought that they didn't know that she now owned the land. Afterwards, however, when she writes to the track to rectify the situation, they tell her that she won't be admission-free, as it was a one-time deal they'd struck with my granddad that now was off. So, enter the petty revenge. A few months later, when we had planned to cut down some of the trees for lumber, my mother told the contractors to accidentally leave one or two logs across the maintenance road. The racetrack, now having to load their horses on trolleys as they had to use the busy public road instead of our maintenance one, almost immediately sent an email to my mother, apologizing, offering her that same deal as my granddad received if we'd removed the logs. She only informed them that the one-time deal they'd struck with my granddad was off. In the end, after some wrangling, we ended up with a deal where they now have to pay my mother around 400 US dollars every month 
in addition to her and her guests having free admission. And there we go. Some solid revenge right there. If anything, as soon as I started reading this story, I was thinking, yeah, you know, tickets are nice, but they're worth $5. You are giving access to a really important road for this company's entire, you know, business model, right? Without that road, as we've seen, the whole thing kind of gets decimated. So from the off, you should have been getting money. However, the fact of the matter now is that they, they took you for granted and you're now doing pretty well out of it. $400 doesn't actually seem like enough. I'd say even push for some more. You have the monopoly on that road, obviously. Go for more. Go for a K. See what they do. The good thing is you're back to enjoying the horses. Cool bylaw on me because I'm too sick to mow my grass. Enjoy your view of my eight foot fence. So the cool about the long grass was kind of a last straw thing. The backstory is my grandpa passed away two years ago and I moved into his house. He was pretty healthy, but he let the yard go down a bit. The grass was maintained, but the trees were overgrown. His pond and patio were dirty, etc. Our neighbor years ago sold their yard to a property builder. Our properties are in an L shape. So our neighbor was using our backyard as her virtual backyard. For the past two years, I've been trying my best to maintain the backyard while also working and dealing with my grandpa's stuff. Well, for the past few weeks, the backyard has fallen a bit as stress from work has creeped in and I was sick for a few weeks. Before this, the neighbor has always had nitpicks, but I mostly ignored them. But this time they rang the door to complain about mess in the back. And I told them, I have a life outside this house. If it bugs you that much, you're more than welcome to do the work. Following that, bylaw came by and they were very understanding about my situation and gave me more than enough time to feel better and mow the lawn. Well, that whole thing angered me and I wanted to get the typical white picket fence as there wasn't a fence and we were passively looking for a dog. So I decided, screw it. And I built the largest fence I could. And since her house was right on the property line, she now looks out the window and instead of seeing my backyard, just sees a wooden fence. And there we go, the definition of a noisy neighbor. Why not just be happy with what you have right now? First of all, you don't have a garden yourself, but you have access to one in the form of your neighbors, at least looking at it. You can't really say to them, oh yeah, by the way, uh, ever since I sold my garden, can you make sure that you keep yours really pristine so I can look at it? I'm not going to help at all. And it's actually nothing to do with me. But yeah, if you don't mind, keep it really looking great. Uh, it's just not going to go down that well. Surely know your place and know the fact that you don't even have a garden and you're lucky enough to see one in the first place. But uh, yeah, great karma great revenge. If you tell someone to do something and it's not your business, then um, yeah, someone's well within their right to say, you know what? No, I'm going to make it worse. And that is exactly what OP did. Very well indeed. Move my furniture, my turn. This happened when I'd only just moved from home and got my own place. Super proud of myself as I'd saved like a demon and bought, with mortgage obviously, my first place. Lovely little two bed flat in a slightly rough area, but I loved it and it was all mine. My mum and stepdad came to visit for a few days, a few months after I was settled in. Nicely decorated in my own style, all my own furniture. One of the evenings they stayed, I had to work a late shift. They planned to go out for dinner and to the pub and I left them to it. I came home at 11 p.m. and my mum had moved nearly all of the furniture around and all my books and kitchen stuff were moved to different shelves or cupboards. She even moved my bed in my room. So when I opened the bedroom door, it hit the bed. I was fuming. I angrily fixed what I could that night before going to bed. I spoke to her about it the next day and explained that it's my home and I had it how I liked. So stop, please. I put everything else back, which took hours. She just grumbled the whole time that it looked better her way. Their last day, I nipped out to the shops to get us some nice bits for lunch. And in the hour I was gone, she'd done it again. Moved all my kitchen stuff around to where she liked it. 
Again, I told her off. My house, my rules. She still maintained it was better her way and I should just let her crack on. Fine. I let her do what she wanted and I put my stuff back when they left. So, my revenge? Well, I went to visit their house six months later and I did the same to her. She went out to work one day and I rearranged every bit of furniture I could by myself. Everything. I swapped the dining room and living room furniture over so you had to walk food through the living room and across the hallway to get to the dining room. I swapped their bedroom and guest room curtains over. The windows were different sizes, so their now bedroom curtains were two foot too short. Even the pointless little things, like moving the spoons to a different side of the drawer, and I moved every photo on the walls to a different wall. I rearranged the fridge. It all took me seven hours. My stepdad was home while I did it and laughed his head off the whole time. He refused to help, but understood, so let me crack on. Neither me nor my stepdad said anything when she got home. We just sat watching TV which was now in what was their dining room. And I asked her how it was work. She didn't say a word. She walked around the house, taking it all in for 20 minutes. Then came and sat down, looked at me and said, point taken. They'd put it back to how it was the next time I visited. We've not spoken of it since. Now this is amazing. Not just the revenge, which is of course brilliant. Not just the fact that your stepdad sat there and said, yep, I can't get involved, but I'm a massive proponent for this. But also the fact that your mum completely accepted and knew instantly what had happened. The fact that you've not spoken about it since is so good. The respect is there. Your mum gets it. You've played a blinder. Your stepdad loved it. Overall, this is just brilliant petty revenge. Got the point across. No one was upset. The beauty of this subreddit. Now for our next petty revenge story. Don't want to pay me for my work? Let me remind you of our contract terms. So back in the day, I worked as a commercial photographer. Most of my clients were great, but a few like to drag payment out or think they could just not pay me because they were a big company and I was just one guy. I had one assignment where I delivered about two dozen images of models with their products. It was a pretty big deal for me. At every step of the way, they expressed their delight with all of the images I delivered. They'd paid me one third up front and after delivering the images, I billed them for the balance. And I waited and waited and waited, nothing. Every time I called, I got some excuse until they just stopped answering my calls. Then it happened. They published the images and in ways that went beyond what our licensing agreement had covered. So not only had they not paid me for the usage we'd agreed to, they'd used the images in ways that went well beyond what we'd agreed to. They still weren't answering or returning my calls. Okay, they want to screw around, they're going to find out. So one of the things in my standard licensing agreement is a condition that says licensing is contingent upon payment in full. So by not paying me, all of their usage is considered infringement, not just the usage outside of our agreement terms. One thing I did when setting up my business is establish a good relationship with a lawyer. It helps that my cousin is a lawyer with good friends. So I call my lawyer and detail everything that's gone down. He sends them a letter letting them know we intend to sue for infringement since the images were never licensed and that the penalty is like $150,000 per image and block their use of the images altogether. I know they got the letter because they called me freaking out, offering excuses. We were in the process of paying you. It had been three months past the due date, accusing me of poisoning our working relationship. Well, if you wanted a good working relationship, you would have stuck by our original agreement and paid me. I ended the call by telling them they needed to deal with my lawyer. They must have consulted with their own lawyer, who evidently told them just how screwed they'd be if they went to court over this. 
In the end, I settled for less than what I asked for in the initial demand, but it was far more than if they just paid me and negotiated for the additional usage. Oh yeah, seems legit. Haven't paid for three months, but then as soon as you put it on them, oh no, we've been in the process of doing it. Payments take three months sometimes. You know what? I work with, or at least have worked with in the past, a lot of brands across a multitude of my own media. This channel you guys would have seen on the likes of Spotify, Apple, etc. And to be honest, it's pretty obvious which ones are messing you about and which ones aren't. And Sadly, some of them do. I can't lie. Some of them take ages. Now, the majority have a policy of either 30 or 60 days to pay invoices, which is completely fair. But a lot of them actually just pay in like a day. When you ask them, they just do it because that's all it takes. It's the same as me paying you, a friend or a family. Yeah, they might have to expense it and go through some formal stuff within their company, but the actual payment literally takes a day maximum. I mean, even internationally, a few days maximum. So the fact that they're waiting three months and then coming up with this BS just proves that it is BS. And uh, yeah, the good thing is you got more than you would have done in the first place. Ultimately, they wasted their own time and their own money. And uh, yeah, came across as pretty stupid. OP, well done. Car salesman talks himself out of a sale. About seven years ago, I, 26 at the time, got a new job, which meant we didn't need our two cars. So my wife, who was 27, decided that we would sell both our cars and buy a bigger, nicer single car. We both had well-paying and stable jobs and additionally had the support of a low interest loan from parents to fund a purchase. We did our research extensively and decided that there were two options for us, a Ford Mondeo or a Kia Seed with our preference for the Mondeo. We'd worked out all the financials and had the spreadsheets to calculate that we could afford both secondhand. At this point, we found our local dealerships and booked appointments with both to test drive the cars so that we could make a final decision. We arrived at the Kia dealership and all went fine. We liked the car and the salesperson was helpful. We happily trundled across to the full garage for our appointment and were met by John the salesman. John was an old white salesman who clearly been selling cars for years and he'd clearly made a snap decision about the young couple in front of him. John sat us down at his desk and proceeded to tell us how expensive and exclusive the Mondeo was and he wasn't sure we'd be able to afford it. He asked us our budget and we told him, but he didn't seem to accept it. He wanted us to tell him our salaries and other financial data and we refused, saying we just wanted to test drive one. He told us he couldn't let us do that unless he knew we were serious buyers. We even asked if we could at least see inside one and he refused that too. We left and walked back into the Kia dealership and bought the car we test drove earlier and we were very happy with it, keeping it for the next six years. This wasn't enough for me though. I took a picture of the Kia and sent it to the manager of the Ford branch to say that we'd bought the Kia because of the actions of John. The reply from the manager was surprising. He replied that he was devastated because their margins were so tight and explained that John would receive a reprimand for losing them money. So, moral of the story, don't judge a book by its cover. Now this, to me, is just as simple as bad salesmanship. Don't you think? Like, even if you're not entirely sure, even if... You know, you think, okay, it's more than likely these guys can't afford it. Why don't you just do it anyway? Give them the benefit of the doubt and say, you know what? Yeah, go for a test drive. Aren't there, I don't know, some sort of finance plans that you can put in place, payment plans as well for people that don't have the cash outright? I mean, there definitely are. And for that to, to take place or for you to offer that must be kind of feasible, right? To people that don't have loads of money or don't seem really wealthy when you first look at them or are in their mid-20s. I mean, it's pretty ridiculous. A Ford Mondeo isn't the most expensive of cars out there. I get it more if, you know, 
you had two random teens who were like, yeah, uh, any chance I can test drive a Ferrari today? Then probably you're going to be like, okay, let's not make that happen. But given the spot we now know that John and the company were in, this branch anyway, surely it's in your interest to say, yeah, let's do it. What are you losing out on? A bit of time, half an hour driving about, looking inside a car. Really? Is that not worth it? Ultimately, yeah, John deserved to be reprimanded. Maybe he just couldn't be bothered. Nonetheless, whatever it is, that's very poor from John. Now for our final petty revenge story of this episode. Want to charge us extra for something that didn't happen? Have fun with your reviews tanking. This happened a few years ago. My girlfriend at the time, now wife, and I used to vacation in Asheville, booking cabins through a rental company. She grew up there and loved it. Plus, she had friends and family in the area that we would visit while there. One of the rules the company had was that no extra guest was allowed to stay overnight, or there'd be a fee. This rule never bothered us as we never planned on having that. But we did invite a couple of my girlfriend's friends over to hang out for a little while. They got there around 7 or 8 and stayed until about 11 before heading home. We finished the trip, had a great time, and went home thinking all was good. A couple of days after we got home, I got an email from a woman in the rental company who claimed that their maintenance guy saw that we had people stay over and we were being charged an extra $200 for breaking occupancy rules. Next came a back and forth between her and I where I told them nobody stayed overnight and that they left around 10.30 to 11pm. But she claimed to me that occupancy is anyone being in the cabin at all which made no sense. I looked up the legal definition of occupancy, which did not side with her, but she told me it didn't matter and they charged me the extra 200. Cue the revenge. Between my girlfriend and I, we got about eight people with 20 different Google accounts, all leaving one star reviews on the company's Google page. This took their rating of around 4.4 all the way down to the mid three stars. It was a local company. Well, someone higher up must have gotten wind of this and they knew exactly who did it. Within a couple of hours, I got several emails from the original woman and her supervisor apologizing for the misunderstanding and asking how they could get us to take down the bad reviews. After telling them it was clearly not a misunderstanding, I told them to kick rocks since they wanted to treat us that way. And long story shorter than it could be, we ended up getting an offer of 200 off our next visit if we took the reviews down. And they obviously refunded me that extra 200 plus another 100 off that stay. Karen, I hope you understand what occupancy means now, if you still have a job. And there we go. An age-old revenge to finish up this episode. Nothing worse if you're a company than seeing your online rating. I mean, we all know how important trust is and online ratings are these days in the modern world. Just absolutely tank. I mean, 4.4 is not great to begin with, but seeing that go below four to the mid threes, ish, you're not getting any business from anyone who, who checks up online and, and sees those reviews. Uh, yeah, terrible stuff. To be honest with you, what are you actually doing? Like occupancy rules are not just, they're just, I don't even have to look that up to know that it just means that you don't have to stay overnight or you're not allowed to stay overnight. Going to someone's house from seven to 10 is obviously allowed. I do know that, that across you know a lot of the world, the occupancy rules are very, very tight. I know personally that one of my friends who's in Barcelona right now has pretty strict occupancy rules. But again, that's for people staying over and they have to pay a fee if they want that to happen. But to just go and visit someone for a few hours, you don't have to pay for that. That's insane. I went no contact with my narcissistic mother over a tea kettle. She tried to ruin my life again, so I ruined hers. I'm 42 years old. To say that I tried for too long is an understatement. I tried the hands-off approach for my 30s and most of the time it worked. 
However, as I've been learning about my codependency and trying to heal from the trauma that woman has wrought across my life, I've been much more upfront on calling her out on her bull. I was patient. I wouldn't back down anymore and I'd often find myself feeling absolute pleasure at seeing her flying off in a narcissistic rage over me being able to beat her at her own game. Fun for a while, right? But I realized these talks and texts we had were coming at a price to my mental well-being. Sometimes I admit she'd get me. As a mum, she knew what buttons she could push to really get a rise out of me. I was trying to work on myself and started debating if no contact would be the best choice. That is when it happened. The thing that sent me over the edge was an old tea kettle. First of all, some backstory. I moved back to my hometown after my grandmother's health was starting to go downhill to take care of her. As she was a former nursing home at CNA, I always promised my nanny I wouldn't ever let her waste away in one of those facilities. But with the move came drawbacks. My once flourishing career was gone and I was starting over at a smaller facility with much less money. In my mind, it was more than worth the price of being able to take care of my grandmother. However, I'd have to move in with my grandmother in her home. And as I've said, my mother is a narc. I wasn't crazy about this idea as I knew my grandmother only had a lifetime estate on the property. My mother would inherit and I knew it would be hell. Before that though, I got four amazing years with the women who actually loved me and supported me, even through all the pain my mother inflicted upon me. Cue to when my grandmother finally passed. My mum sweeps into the home and starts to lay down rules and what I needed to do to stay in her home. Keep in mind, I'd done all the upkeep to the house for the last four years. I paid for everything and I never asked her for one dang dime of money. I know there's always a price when you ask that woman for help. So instead of bowing down and paying her rent to live in the house that she wasn't even going to use, I made plans. I informed her, no, that won't be happening and let her know of my plans to move. To say she tried every which way she could to prevent my moving is an understatement. From trying to drum up new things I owed her money for, to dangling the carrot of signing the house into my name, to letting other family members know if they helped me move, she'd never forgive them. I was 39 years old. That is how controlling this woman tried to be. However, I just kept my nose down, packed all my things, moved absolutely everything I owned by myself and took off in a U-Haul not even a month later. After my grandmother passed, I did try harder in an effort to keep a relationship with my mother. I should have known better, but I told myself one more time. If she can't play nice, then I'm going to cut this out of my life for good. It didn't take but five months for me to be completely done. Since moving, my aunt made a group chat for us and my mother, mostly to keep up with our day-to-day lives. Funny memes, just checking up on me, and just wanting to know how my new home was. My mother would always say condescending things about my new place, but I'd let it slide and remind her that I would have been more than happy to live in her home had she not tried to pull what she pulled. That only made her say that I was ungrateful for her not having charged me rent for the years that I lived there, taking care of her mother and working full time. Keep in mind, my mother remarried a doctor and took every penny of inheritance my grandfather left me. To say she's rather well off is no exaggeration. She's just that greedy. But back to my story. Five months in, my mother starts texting the group chat that I took off with items of hers from the house. Upon asking what it was I supposedly took, she launched into a tirade of me never being able to tell the truth and that she'd never forgive me for what I had done. Again, having to push for actual details was hard over a text, so I called. This is where the tea kettle finally comes into play. The call. So I called. 
she starts launching into me about how I gave an old cast iron tea kettle to my father, her ex-husband. I'm like, what the heck are you even talking about? She explains what she believes, that I had, while living with my grandmother or after my grandmother died, given my father an old tea kettle from our wood stove. I let her know there hadn't been a tea kettle on that stove in years and I wasn't aware it was even missing. She'd somehow found out that the tea kettle was back at my father's place. Now, if you have a narc in your life, you know how they absolutely adore to twist history to their liking. This tea kettle was in my father's family for generations. I grew up knowing this, but my mother simply took it with her in the divorce to hurt my father as family heirlooms meant a lot to him. So I kept explaining over and over again. I had no idea what she was talking about or how dad even got the tea kettle. After screeching at me for a while, I finally told her that I wasn't entertaining this notion of hers. I would call my father myself to figure out what had happened. She said I'd better freaking get the tea kettle back or there'd be hell to pay. The truth. So I called my good old dad. Now look, my father isn't perfect, but he's been pretty dang good to me, especially after all the trash my mother put him and I threw together. From using me to emotionally blackmail him and intentionally sabotaging our relationship wherever she could. AKA, he knows she's a covert narcissist because he was married to her. So when I call him, he answers with, hi, is this about the tea kettle? I laugh and say, bingo. He then explains, while my grandmother was alive, she felt bad that my mother had taken the tea kettle from him during the divorce and left it at her home, my grandmother's house. After I moved back in, my father started to come and visit us. He always loved my nanny and she adored him as a son-in-law. They reconnected and he helped us a lot while she was still alive. He'd even visit when I wasn't at home sometimes. He said he noticed the tea kettle, but never said anything about it to her until she brought it up one day. She told him to please take it back. She knew it was his and she didn't think my mum even remembered having took it. Of course, she had taken almost everything from his house when they divorced. He was very grateful, of course, and took back the family tea kettle. Fast forward to years later, when my father was talking to a buddy about their divorces, and he was admitting that he finally got something back from her, even if it took almost 20 years. They had a laugh, but the friend's now ex-girlfriend was charmed by my mother and told her about the tea kettle being with my father. Boom. So she called him and started calling him a thief, and that he knew that tea kettle was her family's and had never been his. He just called her on her BS and said, well, hell, even if it didn't say my family name on it, possession is nine tenths of the law, blah, blah. And on no uncertain terms, let her know that she would not be getting it back as it was his in the first place. She was livid. And of course he was amused as she asked how the heck he got it in the first place. He explained my grandmother having gave it to him. But for some reason, she fixated on it being my fault. I had to have been the one to give it back to him. I was the one who gave her family's tea kettle to her ex. Tiring story, isn't it? So unnecessary and draining. With all that in mind, that was when I realized I was done. The emancipation. So having got the full story from my father, I was texting my aunt and mother in our group chat and telling them. My mother continued to call me a dirty liar with nasty comments in the group chat in front of my aunt. Now, I'm the most patient and understanding person, so while I really hate how my mother treated me, I would never call her out in front of anyone. I would always argue and debate behind closed doors and alone, as I didn't want to, number one, bring anyone else into the mess that was her abuse, and number two, she was still my mother, and I didn't want to embarrass her in front of anyone. I don't know what it was about this tea kettle that finally broke me, but it was the catalyst. 
but there were other things that made the tea kettle incident explode. While I had moved, my mother was still intent on having me move back into her home so I could take care of it until I inherit it from her one day. Ha, yeah, right. So I tested her on this a few weeks before the tea kettle incidents. If I wanted to move back, her conditions were that I would only have access to one bedroom. There's three, but she and her husband are hoarders. By the way, his touch in this was allowing me to have access to the communal areas of the house. Isn't that so kind to allow me one bathroom and access to the kitchen and living room? God, they're a match made in hell. The reason I'd only have access to one bedroom was they miraculously put their home on the market and it was going to be sold. They were going to move from a three-story mansion to a three-bedroom cabin. So that's the reason she couldn't put the house in my name right away. It would have to wait until they bought a new house. They'd live in the cabin with me while the new home was being built and their old home sold. It's beyond insane, but this is how her mind works. I then told her, no thanks. I'm very happy spending way more money being in a thriving city and having my own home with three bedrooms. However, it struck me. My mother likes to lie a lot. So much so that over the course of the years I was doing the hands-off approach, I've recorded what she'd say and replay it to myself to remind me that I wasn't insane. Because as I'm sure many of you know, gaslighting is a hell of a drug. This house lie was another provable story. There'd be evidence if it was on the market. One of my buddies who grew up with me is a real estate agent. He hates my mother because of how my mother treated his mum. So he gladly helped me look at all the listings from as far back as a year ago. Supposedly, she'd put her house up for sale about a month ago. He couldn't find anything about it. It's listed as not for sale anywhere, even as of today's writing. So, boom, more concrete evidence of her lying. I recorded the conversation with her and her husband without her knowing it. Don't worry, I live in a one-party state. Because again, nothing comes without terms and conditions, and she likes to rewrite history. Back to the future. I'd recorded this conversation. I thought it's about time that I do something different. If I'm thinking about going no contact, I might as well go out in a blazing ball of righteous hellfire, right? While she was attempting to humiliate me in front of my aunt again, I spoke to my aunt in a separate message. I'm sorry if you're going to be upset with me, I said, but this has been 41 years in the making and I'm done. She called me worried and I told her the truth. Finally, I let someone else hear the lies she told me. And in the group text, I posted the real estate listings and how their home was not listed for sale anywhere. My mother started to go into panic mode and was telling more lies about how it's not up yet because it was so new. I let her know that was a lie too, as it had been quite some time since she said she listed it. My aunt gasped, seeing her floundering for an explanation in the chat. I explained and she let me know. No matter what, she still loved me and understood how after years of abuse, I finally had enough. The fallout. So, as a narc usually does, she went on her rampage and started to blacken my name to everyone in our family and in our hometown. Not a big deal, I don't really like my hometown. The few people I keep up with are lifelong pals. They know the private monster my mother can be versus the public persona that most people get. But for years, it had been building. I had a lot of proof. However, I was trying to allow her to behave and back off. I'd not answered her since the night I posted those listings to my aunt's group chat. But I was getting nasty messages from the flying monkeys about what a terrible daughter I am. I finally texted and let her know. Unless she backed down and stopped this campaign against me, I was going to do something to her for how she's poisoning my name and reputation. 
I knew from reading about Narcissus that this was coming, so I prepared. When she didn't stop, and a preacher I had never spoken to contacted me via Facebook to attempt to shame me into talking to her, I saw red. I did it. I went full scorched earth. I made a huge group chat with all of my contacts in my phone, all our family, some of her friends, some of her ex-friends, her husband's family, his kids, many people in our community, that preacher who decided I was a horrible daughter, just many who believed her lies. Most of these people had turned their backs on me anyways. So I didn't feel too bad when I sent them all the nasty things she'd said about them to me in texts, voicemails, and the phone recordings I had. I didn't realize how much I had saved, all just to keep my own sanity with her gaslighting me. And I sent it all. At the end of it, with the story about the house being for sale and the latest lie fest she'd concocted shown, my father, who was also in the group chat, took a picture of the kettle. He asked in the chat, was this really worth it? Many of these people had also wronged him in the community due to the lies my mother spread about him after their divorce. He and I then left the group chat. The conclusion. Suffice to say, that ruffled many feathers. Many of the people in that group chat were upset at how my mother had spoken about them. A lot of them blamed me for being a horrible daughter, but some have apologized to me. I don't care about them. I care about the damage I finally inflicted on the woman who hurt me over and over again with no conscience. I landed a blow to the weakest part of herself, her public persona. Her ego took that hit, and now she can truly be the victim she's always claimed to be. All of this could have been avoided if she didn't lose her goddamn mind over an old rusty tea kettle that's worth nothing. Nothing but sentimental value, and not even to her. That tea kettle was just a conquest to her, a token of victory over her ex-husbands. I went no contact that day. I've also cut off many of the relationships from the people in that chat, even if they apologized. It's not that I don't forgive them, I just don't miss them. Maybe I'm a horrible person for doing what I did, but I can't lie and say it didn't feel good to finally show people what she's really like. I spent so much of my life trying to be the good daughter that when I finally broke, I broke hard. I hope you don't judge me too harshly for my actions, but if I had to do it over again, I'd pick the same every time and there we go that is it for that whirlwind of a nuclear revenge story where to even begin with this the fact that this has gone on for your entire life just makes me feel honestly so bad for you i'm so lucky that my parents are just like very good in general they're just good people they let me get on with my own thing they would do anything for me they're very selfless I do take that for granted a lot of the time. I'm not going to lie. Perhaps with age, I'm, I'm understanding that more, how, how good they've been to me across my life. But wow, it really hits home when you read something like this. Someone that has, for 41 years of their 42 years of life, had to deal with someone like this. And, and only four decades later, after being born, they finally managed to get over this this monumental, I guess, hurdle in their life. Think of the lasting damage that this woman has had on her very own son. It's ridiculous. I caught my partner cheating, so I covered his whole house in glitter. That is literally it. I caught him cheating by looking through his trash, literally, emails, and found some pretty graphic emails from the other woman. Confirmed he was with her that day through his Google Maps tracking. So, I got every bit of loose glitter I owned, and I went to his house and scattered it. In his bed, his couch, his chairs, his toilets, his clothes, his iron flat-top stove. I know I'll be okay, and I'm going to heal. 
But guess who probably won't ever be able to fully get rid of all the glitter? And that right there is the beauty of petty revenge. Sometimes revenge can be so simple yet so sweet. Let's carry on. Now for our next story of petty revenge. Angry lady yelled at a special needs person at the gym. So we did a bit of trolling. This guy named Michael has Down syndrome and he's at the gym with his father four days a week around the same time. He is very nice and positive. He yells encouragement and compliments to people working out. When he arrives at the gym and if he sees me, he yells very loudly, something like, Hey, how are you? Glad I can see you. And if he likes my shirt, he tells me he likes it and the things he likes about it. Michael is a genuinely good person and I love seeing him when I work out. When he's working out, he makes loud oo sounds that sound like a cow going moo, but without the M part. It's very loud, especially when he's getting in the zone in his workout. If you've never seen him, you look up, see him lifting like a beast, and being the mature adult you are, can tell he has Down syndrome, mind your own freaking business, and go back to your workouts. Apparently, that was too hard for someone this evening. A lady with her training group, about five people total, was working out next to Michael. How the gym is laid out, the aerobic stretching area is next to the dumbbells. Still plenty of room for everyone. Michael is doing his thing, having a great workout, but he is getting very loud. His father is nearby working out on the machines near the dumbbell area. One of the ladies gets annoyed and walks up to him and yells at him to keep it down. I know the father. We have similar jobs and talk sometimes about work. We both made eye contact and our eyes widen. We're both thinking, what the frick is wrong with her? Michael isn't hurting anyone and almost everyone has headphones on anyway. Michael said, okay, very loudly. That's just him, but it felt like a hilariously smart-ass response. Everyone gets back to their workouts. Michael obviously is just as loud as ever making those noises. The lady gets angry again, walks up to him, and literally yells at him to keep it down. The father is understandably angry, walks up to her, tries to explain to her that he's special needs and doesn't mean to be loud. They argue for a bit. I couldn't hear everything they said, but the conversation ended when the father yelled extremely loudly, He's our word. What the frick do you want from us? Everyone stops working out and looks at her. Her face turns bright red and she sulked away. Everyone goes back to their workouts. Yeah, not entirely sure with the dad's use of the R word there about his own son, but I guess he's that infuriated that he's just trying to make a point to the woman. I don't know. Not a word I would have chosen, but hey, I'm not in this story. So now for the petty revenge parts. My workout buddy and I decided that we really, really needed to work our abs. So we did some sit-ups in the stretching area next to their group. And we grunted loudly when we got to the last few reps. They said nothing to us though, but we still had fun. Ah man, you've got to be a pretty terrible person to ever have a go at someone with Down syndrome. I mean, what are you doing in that situation? Especially given the fact that it's a gym. Gyms are pretty loud anyway. And Michael's just having fun, doing what he loves, lifting weights, being a beast, as you said, OP. Let the man have some fun and let him get jacked. Oh, and also, of course, great petty revenge from you and your mate. Just letting them know how absurd they're being. Made a road rager pay for his actions. So something bizarre happened on my drive to work a few days ago, and I still think about it. There was this car that was aggressively weaving between lanes sometimes with zero warning or turn signals. And at one point he tried to get into my lane, but I was already next to him. He still tried to merge and nearly ran me into the left median. I had a car in front of me and behind me, so I couldn't brake too fast or speed up. And I wasn't in his blind spot. So instead I honked my horn, but he still tried to get in the lane. 
he ended up getting behind me and tailgating me aggressively and i'm like whatever dude i'm just driving to work this isn't fast and furious you're in a lexus eventually he got in front of me and i thought it was the end of it wow you're in a lexus there goes down as one of the all-time great lines phenomenal but this guy made me his enemy because after that he did not let me pass him ever I simply did not care. I was too tired for antics. But anytime I changed a lane, he'd change with me and then slow down to slow me down. And for a while, I thought, am I imagining this? So finally, an exit for the toll road was coming up on the right. And I was like, screw it. I'll take the toll road. Get away from this guy. And I sped up to get into the exit lane. But this guy went all the way from the left lane into my toll road lane. So I was like, you had no intention of being in this lane. I don't think i'm imagining things anymore so i stayed a good distance back waited for him to get kind of into the curve of the exit lane to the point where he was committed to it and i immediately changed lanes and got out i watched him try to swerve out but it was too late for him he was in the toll lanes and i was on my merry way i've been thinking about it and laughing for days now oh my gosh didn't just waste his time also cost him money phenomenal i mean honestly just just so good so good i'm not surprised you've been thinking about it and laughing about it for days it's one of the best petty avengers i've read so simple this guy clearly just very very angry person very jealous i mean a lot going on clearly who in their right mind would ever act like this i have no idea and he paid the ultimate physical price in the sense that he went through a toll that he clearly didn't want to go through i don't even know where that road would have gone who cares i mean hopefully it was a nice smooth journey for him but uh, yeah had to pay for no reason at all other than his own idiocy love it now for our next petty revenge story inconveniencing an entitled girl so a couple of days ago i was getting my nails done at a local salon the girls there are amazing and it's just three of them so they time manage as it goes most people just walk in but most people know if you do that you'll have to wait they'll usually say come back in x amount of time and we'll be ready for you i had an appointment and still ended up waiting a little no big deal they were slammed In that time, three people came in and their names were written down as next in line, as well as two girls already waiting next to me. So, five people after me. I finally sit down to get my nails done and it's a simple manicure with no polish. One girl was doing pedicures on a couple and the other had just started a full set. As soon as I sit down, this teenage girl comes in with her parents and seats herself at a table without saying anything. Her parents then walk up to the lady who was doing my nails and say, and I quote, Her flight leaves in five hours and we have to leave in one to make it on time. Her nail just broke. Fix it. Rude. So, so rude. Not to mention there are five people ahead of her. The nail lady tries to explain that, but the parents just talk over her and the techs have a conversation about it in their language. And then the girl doing my nails nods and says, Okay, when I'm done with her, I will fix it. Cool, cool. I proceeded to then ask for a dip manicure with nail art and the deluxe spa package. The hour was up and the girl and the parents were positively fuming. They ended up leaving, her nail still broken. My nails look great and I tipped extra. Well, safe to say you absolutely nailed this petty revenge. Well, there you go. Let's carry on. My roommate kept stealing my clothes, so I tie-dyed his. I didn't go to college until I was 21. For some reason, the fact that I was of legal drinking age made partying a lot less fun. That wasn't the case, though, for my 18-year-old roommate, Paul. 
We didn't have much in common, different courses, friend groups, etc. So we didn't talk much, but he was a huge party animal. He'd come to our dorm drunk at 2am on weekdays and then go to his classes very hungover. He also had a girl over at least once a week and they were never quiet. But the most notable thing about Paul is that he was a jerk. Not only that, but his family was loaded. So he was the kind of jerk who bragged about how much of a jerk his money allowed him to be. Paul was pre-law and some of his teacher's greatest students based on how formal their attire was in class. Paul had six Oxford shirts from expensive stores. Think Hugo Boss and Ralph Lauren, all in white. His wardrobe consisted only of those shirts, four dress pants and a single t-shirt. One day, as I was preparing to do laundry, I noticed some clothes I hadn't worn or put in the basket recently. Now, they were clearly worn, reeking of sweat, alcohol, and a bodily fluid I won't name. Some were also stained. It was gross. I confronted Paul about it, and sure enough, he'd been wearing my clothes to party, drink, and, in quotes, get lucky. His excuse was that his clothes were too expensive to wear at parties, and like all my t-shirts, flannels, and jeans. I yelled at him that he couldn't take my clothes without permission. He said, Dude, it's just clothes. It's not that you can't wear them anymore. The fight was going nowhere, so I just told him to never do it again, and he agreed. But the week before spring break, Paul did it again. This time, he ripped one of my jeans. Not a small split that anyone can fix, but a long horizontal tear across the thigh. I could never wear those pants again. I thought about confronting Paul, but then I had a better idea. I was alone when I found out, so he didn't know that I knew. For the rest of the week, I didn't bring it up. Then, Paul left for spring break. He was wearing his t-shirt and didn't pack anything else since he was going home. So, I waited an hour, shoved all six of his Oxford shirts into my backpack, and left to spend the week with my family. Once I got to my mum's place, I started brainstorming what I'd do with the shirts. Tearing them wasn't enough. That could be fixed. Whatever I did, it had to be permanent. Then, my sister gave me a suggestion. I called a couple of friends over and we got to work. We tie-dyed every single white shirt. We chose the most vibrant colors we could find. There was no way Paul would be able to wash them off. After spring break, I made sure to get to the dorm before Paul. I put all the shirts back in the closet and left to see a friend. When I got back a few hours later, Paul was on the phone with his parents. He'd put them on speakerphone and was screaming about how someone had colored his shirts and he couldn't wear them to class. At one point, he said he wanted to sue whoever did it. At that, his father shut him up and told him to stop complaining. He said it was probably just a prank and he wasn't going to sue anyone. After Paul hung up, I asked, what's the matter, dude? He looked at me. I could tell he thought I'd done it, but he didn't say it. For about a week, Paul went to his classes wearing his only t-shirts. He couldn't convince his parents to buy him new shirts, so he had to start wearing the tie-dyed ones to class until he could save enough money to get more shirts. His craze dropped, but he still passed, and Paul never stole my clothes again. Not my proudest moments, but I don't regret it. I don't really understand why Paul's getting so angry here. I mean, it's not as if there's anything to get in a twist about. No one, uh died or anything like that and the result wasn't a tie it doesn't really work uh, but nonetheless phenomenal revenge very much enjoyed it and yeah oh, people like paul just not people you want to be associated with the, the tough thing is that you have to be a roommate with him that is tough i mean like, imagine you get to uni you're a, you're a you're a mature student you get to college whatever and paul is your roommate that is why they normally keep the mature students separate from the Immature students, let's just call them. The undergrads. Because, uh, yeah. You get a lot of people like Paul at uni, that's for sure. Um, and when pools are with pools, it's absolutely fine. They have a great time. 
But when pools are with other people that are trying to do their stuff, yeah, it doesn't really work. And um, tie-dyeing ultimately was the phenomenal answer. And now for our final petty revenge of this episode. How I got a terrible manager so embarrassed and stressed that she quits. I worked under a manager a few years ago who was awful in every sense of the word. She would throw personal belongings into the garbage, things like designer purses, coffee mugs, etc. Her excuse was they shouldn't be laying around in the open. I understand that, but you don't throw people's personal belongings away. This manager also enjoyed making our lives hell. She would add extra work on us from previous shifts that were short-staffed, as well as add work when governing bodies would be coming in to clean up the area. We would tell her we didn't have the already hilariously ridiculous time to get that impossible work done. She started suggesting we skip our breaks. Whenever we complained we didn't have time to complete work, she would say, Oh, well, I never got breaks whenever I worked for 40 years before getting this position. She'd even say things like, oh, your breaks aren't that important. Me, being nice to people's face to a point, shouldn't have been messed with. I emailed the general manager of the building as well as his assistants, a union representative and our union president. I explained how our manager was treating the staff regarding our breaks and how our belongings were literally being thrown in the garbage. Nobody responded to my email, but with the system we used, you could see everyone who saw it. So when everyone saw it and I received no reply, I replied to the email, failure to respond appropriately within a week will result in this email being forwarded to the Ministry of Labor and Human Rights Board. I received two emails from the union. One was the representative saying he didn't agree with the manager's comments. The other from the general manager saying he would deal with the issue. The next day, I came in for my evening shift. The manager was standing next to our reporting area, looking very upset. She pointed at a paper on the wall and explained that the general manager gave her that and that we were to sign off when we took our breaks. And if for whatever reason we missed it, she was to pay us for overtime. She then took me aside and told me she didn't understand why somebody would report her for cracking jokes. I responded with, Jokes are made when everyone laughs. When you made your jokes about our breaks and throwing our belongings out, not even you were laughing. She quit three days later, stating too much stress. Yeah, slightly, uh, slightly interesting opinion there from your boss. Oh, just stop having breaks, guys. You don't need them anyway. Why do they exist then? Like breaks exist. Why are they there? It's at times like this that I think about those studies that I've seen, those experiments. I don't know where it is. Like places in Europe, companies that have gone to a four-day working week and they've actually seen the productivity of their employees increase because the employees work harder on the four days that they're actually in the office doing their jobs, knowing that they have that three-day weekend. What I'm trying to say is, if you work more hours, it doesn't actually mean that you're being more efficient in your work, does it? Because you're just going to be so unhappy that you're going to be like, oh, I hate this. There's going to be a huge turnover of staff. And I'm sure that would have happened if the general manager and people above him wouldn't have got involved. Thankfully, they did. And thankfully, this manager quit. Try getting me fired. Enjoy homelessness. I was an adjunct professor at a college. One of the students didn't like me and tried to get me fired by making false accusations that I'd pinched her and caressed her hair. I did not take this lightly. I could have been fired or face criminal charges. Now, this student was on a scholarship that required her to maintain a minimum attendance. Our college also requires a minimum attendance to pass a unit. As an eye for an eye, right? I accidentally forgot to mark her name down when taking attendance, even if she was there. A few weeks later, she was gone. 
I was confronted by her friend that she lost her scholarship and was now living out of her car because of my carelessness in taking attendance Little did they know and as a little edit opie has said my entire livelihood could have been ruined How was I meant to know that she wouldn't do it again? I can't kick someone out from a he said she said situation Some of the students were already treating me with hostility. You know what opie you didn't even have to vindicate yourself to me that final edit Whilst great wasn't necessary. I was on your side the entire time. It makes complete sense I don't care if someone's a student and you're the teacher and therefore in theory You should be the the wiser one. I guess the more mature one You know the person in the position of power if they are doing these sort of things to you Which can clearly cause you to lose your job and ultimately ruin your life Then I don't see why you can't do the same to them I'm sorry. It should work both ways. It's a two-way street a lot of the comments on reddit are pretty upset They think op went too far and there were better ways of doing this But this is called nuclear revenge guys. I mean come on. What do we want here? And also her life hasn't been destroyed. Yes, she's lost a scholarship, but that's it She can re-enter another college and she'll be fine She needs to learn a lesson of the fact that she literally could have ruined this guy's life just from lying That is terrible and it deserves to be punished This is good. Now for our next nuclear revenge story. I ruined my boss's life. A few years ago, I worked for a couple of months in a pastry shop. To work there, my boss promised me eight hours a day, except Mondays, half day, and Thursdays, closed, and 700 euros a month. Obviously all off the books. Although I had some resentment about working illegally, I accepted anyways because I needed some money. The first day of work, I was in there for 11 hours from 5.30 a.m. to 1.30 p.m., and then from 3 p.m. to 6 p.m. I thought that was normal, since it was my first day. Even if in reality, some doubts came to me right away, because all the others had been there as much as me, and for them, it was certainly not the first day. The situation continued to be this, hours ranging from 10 to sometimes 13 a day. Furthermore, for two weeks in a row, on Monday, the day on which we were only supposed to work in the morning, we instead worked with the schedules of the other days. At the end of the month, I asked for my well-deserved salary and my boss got angry, telling me that I was only thinking about money when in reality, I hadn't even asked him to pay me for the multiple hours of overtime. He then told me that he would pay everyone at the end of the first week of the following month. The following day, after working as usual for 11 hours, at the end of the shift, he called me aside telling me that since I'd been presumptuous, I had to show up for work on Thursday, even though it was my day off. Obviously, I got angry and replied that I'd worked much longer hours than those agreed and that I would not show up for work on my day off. And so I did. Thursday came and I didn't show up, ignoring hundreds of calls from my boss and his wife. The next day, I showed up for work regularly and was severely reprimanded and then sent home for bad behavior. He told me that we would meet on Sunday to give me the money and then I didn't have to show up again, which I already wanted to do. So Sunday arrived and he showed up with 300 euros telling me that I'd done little this month and that I hadn't been respectful towards him and his business. I got very angry and also went to call my father who was waiting for me in the car. The two almost came to blows. So I took my father and we left, saying it wasn't over there. I kept in touch with some of my colleagues, some even over 18 years old, with whom I'd established a good relationship and who also worked illegally. They told me that the next day, he'd badmouthed me saying that I was a person without any form of respect and dignity. In Italy, we say una cosa inutile. They'd witnessed the scene the previous Friday and were speechless. They thought I had to do something and not let me walk on my head like this. And they were right. 
So I decided to do something that no one has ever had the courage or the will to do So I went to finance to denounce the fact that he had made most of his employees work illegally and that he had exploited them by underpaying Obviously not alone, but with my colleagues who were also tired of being exploited to support me So we decided on a day and time for a pop check and waited The agreed day was saturday morning from 9 to 10 the day and time when there was usually more workload It goes without saying but contrary to what is thought of in italy Sometimes justice works and that day finance with a surprise check discovered the whole situation and immediately closed the business Subsequently the owner as well as my former boss was investigated and sentenced to I don't remember how many years in prison The business was seized and now his family is having to pay more than a million euros in tax evasion For other reasons related to false receipts and other things that I don't quite understand. Oh man, this one is absolutely shocking (sighs) You just can't run a business like this without getting found out eventually. I'm sorry. It's just never ever gonna happen especially If you treat your employees, well, they're not actually your employees because it's all illegal anyway. So let's call them slaves this badly. Like, I I get it. You know, you think you can get away with it. Fine. (laughs) It's not good, but I I can kind of understand why stupid people will try and do stuff like this to to get around the the system. But then if you treat those people so badly, then they're obviously going to report you, aren't they? How naive do you have to be to think that, yeah, okay, I won't give anyone a proper contract and I will completely abuse them with hours And then I'll pay them under half of what I promised in the first place and it will all be good. Like, no, you're so dumb. You're dumb enough to not even legally employ people, but then treat them that badly. You deserve to go to jail. Now for our third nuclear revenge story. Now this is where it gets a little bit more serious. Abuse me as a child, teenage me might ruin your life. I've wanted to tell this story for so long and I figured this was the perfect place when I was about 10 years old My dad got a new girlfriend lauren lauren was an evil monster when I first met her She was lovely and friendly. I quickly liked her but over the years everything went downhill fast It started small lauren would steal my things then deny it. Of course everyone believed her She'd tell me that my dad loved her more than me and that if she wanted she could click her fingers and he'd never see me again She read my diary then told everyone what i'd written She reported me to the rspca for abusing my animals. I wasn't after a couple of years She had my dad beating me. Yes, I know he was an adult with choices and I hold him just as responsible She would constantly tell my dad how bad I was and encourage him to hurt me After a while, he'd always snap and end up doing what she wanted. There are so many more things she did, but you get the picture. My dad and Lauren separated when I was about 16 years old, but they had a house together still. It was around this time as a suicidal, miserable teenager that I decided I'd get even. I spent months on my plan and this is what I did. I wanted Lauren's entire life to fall apart all at once, so everything had to be perfectly timed. I started by getting her fired with a minor criminal record. Lauren worked at a police warehouse for seized items, but naughty Lauren was stealing from the warehouse. So I made notes as to what she stole and when, and once I had a decent enough list, I anonymously contacted her boss with it. Lauren was immediately suspended and after a few weeks found guilty of stealing. She was immediately fired and charged with theft, including theft of a class C substance. Now Lauren was unemployed and pretty much unemployable. On to stage two. 
Lauren, with no income, needed to sell the house as she was now unable to pay her mortgage. My dad also wanted to sell so he could move in with his new girlfriend. So I made the house unsellable and pretty unpleasant to live in. My dad and Lauren were stupid and never locked their back door. I didn't even have keys. So I'd sneak in when I knew they were out and hide disgusting things. Bugs everywhere, old prawns hidden under floorboards. I even stitched some old prawns into the bottom of the curtains. Dead mice everywhere, including under Lauren's pillow. Live mice in the pantry. The house stank and no one could figure out why. Estate agents refused to list it or would only list it for far under the value and potential buyers would leave quickly after nobody could explain the source of the vile smell. Lauren was approaching bankruptcy, exactly what I wanted. Only one area of her life left to destroy. Lauren had been in a relationship for a year or so with this guy. I can't even remember the poor guy's name. We'll call him John. Well, Lauren was cheating on John and with his own father of all people. Now, poor John proposed to Lauren. He needed to know who she really was, though. One day, when Lauren had John's dad over, I got in the house via the unlocked back door. I grabbed her mobile, which she'd left in the kitchen. It took a few attempts and a lot of house watching to get lucky with the phone. And I texted John from her phone, pretending to be Lauren. I told him I was sick and asked him to come over. Of course, good old John rushed over. I unlocked the front door and texted him, letting him know to let himself in as I was in bed sick. I left and hid around the area. The drama was intense. Lauren and John's dad, half naked, chasing after John in the street, screaming and crying. I think John might have even punched his dad before driving off. Obviously, the relationship was over and John's dad even ditched her in an attempt to get his son's forgiveness. So Lauren was alone, broke, unemployable, facing charges and about to be bankrupt. Now, sadly, I don't know how the story ends. I cut contact with my dad around that time and thus my connection to Lauren was gone. I do remember my dad mentioning her being suicidal right before we stopped speaking. So in my eyes, my goal was achieved. I didn't need to see the fallout anyway. Just knowing what I'd achieved was more than enough for me. And that's the story of how I got revenge. Writing it out, I realized how unreal it sounds, but that's the whole story. Okay, friends, get in the comments. Real or fake? I want to hear your immediate thoughts. Now, again, I'm never going to actually know if this is real or fake. It does seem a little bit fanciful, not going to lie. But for the sake of this episode, I'm going to treat it as if it's real. Therefore, what a story. Uh, I wouldn't want to be on the wrong side of you. That is for sure. That was uh, conclusive. It decimated these people and that was conclusive. It decimated Lauren and ultimately, yeah, absolutely destroyed her life. Good to see. To be honest, I can't really get away from the fact that I think this might not be real, but I'll leave that up to you, the viewers. You are the Oracle. You must tell me the truth. Please do. My heart is saying fake. It really is. My heart is saying fake, guys. And for that, I do apologize because I don't want to bring you fake stories. But were you not entertained? I was. To be fair, the majority of the commenters are actually saying that they think it's real. Just a couple saying... Yeah, I realize how unreal it sounds because it is unreal. To be honest, like you bring your new boyfriend's dad over that she's cheating with to the house that you share with your ex and his daughter. You call the RSPCA claiming you abuse animals. I mean, I don't know. Somehow you knew she was stealing from the police warehouse as well. There's a lot of stuff here that smells a little bit fishy or prawny, if you like. But uh, yeah, up to you. What do you guys think? And now for our final nuclear revenge story, perhaps the most severe of the lot. How about this for a title? Can't keep it in your pants. 
have fun trying to live a normal life a friend of mine told me my story belonged here so here we go so in my country high school starts at the age of 15 and lasts for three years i was a year early so i was 14. during the first weeks of school a guy in my class for the sake of the story i'll call him connor approached me and we started getting along to the point we quickly started dating now little did i know that connor would become my worst nightmare for the next three years he was 17 when we met and just like a lot of guys this age he was obsessed with doing it he pressured me into having my first time with him and he broke up with me right after i eventually gave in after that none of our next intercourses were consented and he was very manipulative and gaslit me into believing i wanted everything that was happening to me It took me a while to understand what he was actually doing. In fact, I only got it after hooking up with another person at the age of 17. Before it finally hit me, he had his way with me more than 50 times. That is tragic. During our second year of high school, he made the mistake of forcing himself violently on my best friend. She ended up getting an abortion because of him and I started plotting my revenge. Originally, it was supposed to avenge her, but it ended up working for me as well I noticed that not only would he only approach the first years even if he was 20 when I graduated But he'd also target the youngest girls among them, too He was repeating to me how much more attractive I was at 14 than 17 Oh my goodness. So knowing that it was pointless to tell the police because in my country only 0.4% of all complaints of assault where victims are less than 15 end up in a sentence I ruined his reputation I told every single one of his acquaintances that he was an r-word and to protect my best friend I told everyone that I was the one he'd violated which wasn't really a lie The rumor spread like wildfire and after a few days even the teachers were looking at him with disgust he was isolated and the only reason why he wasn't bullied was because he was 6'3 now i could have stopped there but i didn't when we were third years i knew exactly which universities he applied for by snooping in connor's bag i found his application numbers so using those i contacted every single university he applied for and explain the situation providing screenshots of his conversation with my best friend where he was threatening her with a defamation case if she attempted to press charges against him she'd sent them to me to rant about him and i'd kept them all this time all of them thanked me and he ended up not being able to get in any university he had to repeat his third year because of that in an establishment where everyone knew what he'd done and all the first years would know that they had to avoid him at all costs Okay, sure, but how about kick him out of the school? What? The next year, since I wasn't there to foil his applications, Connor was accepted in a university that I hadn't contacted the previous year. But unfortunately for him, I ended up learning which university he was going in, and I repeated the same process. There were former students of our high school in the university he was going to who spoke up to the uni's mental health center about the inappropriate behavior that he'd had with them and told them what kind of rumors there were against him. Now, since I had provided proof that the rumors were true, Connor was permanently expelled for the safety of the female students attending the university. That is more like it. So now he doesn't have a degree and nowhere else to go and study with no social life. His situation couldn't get worse, could it? Well, yes, I made it worse. Connor tried to move to another region where nobody would know him and pass a diploma to work with kids. Wow, that is unbelievable, I've got to say. However, 
Connor is a phone addict and he couldn't help but share on his social medias that he'd passed his diploma and started working as an educator for troubled kids and preteens. Little did he know, I'd created an account pretending to be one of his only remaining high school acquaintances who I knew was chronically offline. With a bit of searching, I ended up finding his workplace and I started the same process all over again. I also added a message that he left on my voicemail where he was panting while telling me how hot I was at the age of 14 and how he'd have loved to go back in time just to scroll oh my god just to f me again i'm struggling to get these words out here my goodness me needless to say they got rid of him really quickly fearing for the safety of the kids i was planning on keeping reporting him to all the places he was planning on working at but his previous workplace took care of that for me I don't know how, but according to Connor's social media, they managed to get him blacklisted on a national level, technically invalidating his diploma. Due to this, he couldn't pay his rent anymore and ended up being homeless for a while before his mother accepted to take him back in. I'm friends with his older sister who knows everything about it and told the rest of the family what happened. From what she's told me, everyone cut off ties with both Connor and his mother including her now i'm still occasionally stalking his social media to see if he's trying to get back on his feet the last time i checked was today right before writing all of this so saing two people ended up isolating him both socially and from his family as long as i'm alive he has no chance of ever getting a girlfriend he lives in the region where he spent his high school years so nobody would hire him even as a cleaner and he even spends some nights in the streets Honestly, at this point, it's impressive that no one tried to harm him physically, make him go through what he made me and my best friend go through, or even end his life. Go to hell, Connor. And trust me when I tell you that you'll have to wait for me to die before even thinking about starting to have a normal life. Well, there we go. There we go, indeed. What a story to end things on. Um, Pretty nuts, really. I mean, what do you even say to that, guys? What is that that you can say other than just, you know, disgraceful? guy's clearly a pedo uh if anything i feel like this should have really have been dealt with much much earlier i don't know but given the fact that you were both in the same school couldn't someone at the school like a teacher or some sort of hr rep or just somebody your parents have have noticed that a 17 year old was in a relationship with a 14 year old i would have thought that'd be pretty obvious and you'd at that point say yeah maybe let's not do that anymore um, because that's actually illegal and very very noncy and then you know from there i'm not really surprised that that the rest of the stuff happened if you allow someone like connor to do these sort of things in the first place can you be that shocked when you know he keeps going and things get even worse and even worse and eventually ends up with crazy trauma that may well have ruined two people's lives minimum i don't know personally doesn't sound that shocking to me a neighbor hit my car and lied about it so i ruined 300 pounds of meat while he was on vacation this happened about five or six years ago for some context my neighbor we'll call him chester is your stereotypical weekend outdoorsman type he owns at least 10 different baseball caps and they all have camo on them He's one of those. He drives a Jeep, which will be important later, and usually spends his weekends either hunting, fishing, or prepping for when the bombs drop. I tried to explain to him once that we were within the fallout range of a major city, so if it got hit, we'd be screwed either way, but whatever. Everyone needs a hobby, and some people's is collecting canned peaches. Two weeks before the revenge, I came outside to see my car had a broken window on the passenger side, and that part of the frame was dented just above the door handle. I can tell immediately from the size and shape of the dent exactly what it was from. As I said, 
My neighbor, Chester, drives a Jeep and mounted on his front grill is a cable wench he uses for putting stumps and whatnot. It juts out almost a foot and a half in front of the bumper and is made of solid metal. Anyone with a picture of the wench and the shape of the dent in my car could CSI that just from eyeballing it. The dent is almost identically shaped and situated at the same height the wench was mounted. On top of that, Chester lives directly across the street from me and he likes to back into his driveway. Conveniently enough, my car is always parked on the street, so he has ample opportunities to hit it. I asked Chester about it and without saying anything, he shook his head while biting his lip like some clueless cartoon character. I then asked if anyone who borrowed his car might have done it because the wench itself was pretty scratched up almost like he's been ramming it into things all over town. Again, Chester silently shakes his head and then tries to tell me it was probably teenagers. No exposition, mind you, he just blamed it on teenagers. I was fuming, but kept my composure and went home to call the police and my insurance company to report it. I managed to get a competent police officer who told me point blank that it was clear what happened, but without a witness, it would be pointless to try and prove it. The insurance agent was equally certain of Chester's guilt, but ended up recommending I pay out of pocket for the repair. Since I was parking on the streets, it was a factor the insurance company might use against me if I filed the claim. When it came time for them to recalculate and adjust my monthly rate, I could see a significant increase. A few hundred out of pocket right now could save me several hundred a year going forward if my rate was increased due to my own negligence, which is what the claim would unfortunately be categorized as. Raw deal, for sure, but at least he was honest with me. Fast forward to two weeks later, Chester and his family are going up north to rough it in nature for a week. And despite my cold attitude towards him in recent days, he asked me to keep an eye on his house while he's gone, since I'm the only person in the neighborhood that he trusts, apparently. I agreed to do it, not because I had any type of revenge in mind, but because he gifted me a large case of beer for my service. His one request was that I call him if we have any extreme weather because he'd need me to check on something. Two nights after he left, we had a nasty storm. Wind, hail, and even a few rolling blackouts. The next morning, I called Chester to ask what he needed me to check on, but he didn't answer. Knowing Chester, he'd probably set up camp in some rural part of America with no cell phone service, even though he'd asked me to call him if this happened. After a few failed attempts, I went over to his house to inspect for any potential issues that might have arisen from the weather. I figured he was probably worried about his garage flooding since his yard was frequently a moat after heavy rain. I went into the garage and there was no flooding, but something caught my eye immediately. Four large freezer chests lined up side by side, taking up a huge chunk of the wall. I peeked inside one and immediately realized what Chester was worried about. All four of them were packed from floor to lid with meat. Some of it was still in packages from the grocery store and some of it was wrapped in butcher paper, likely game picked up from Chester's hunting exploits. But on the top of one of the freezers was something else that seemed out of place. It was a red solo cup full of frozen water with a penny sitting on top. I thought that was weird and dismissed it immediately, but curiosity got the better of me later that day when I got home. I decided to Google it, and what I learned instantly clicked as a way to get the ultimate revenge on Chester for hitting my car and sticking me with the repair bill. There's an old life hack that people used to use when they went on vacation. You freeze a cup of water, then place a penny on top of it and stick it in your freezer. If your power goes out, the water will eventually melt and the penny will fall to the bottom of the cup. 
if you return home and the penny is at the bottom of the cup, your freezer was off for an extended period of time and now everything in it has potentially defrosted and become unfit for consumption. I've just clocked what's about to happen. That is brilliant. I immediately got up and ran back to Chester's garage to scope out the legitimacy of my nefarious deed. As luck would have it, Chester's circuit breaker was hidden behind a tool shelf, not directly visible to the naked eye. Who would put a shelf in front of a circuit breaker? Well, Chester, of course. So I promptly took the cup out of the freezer and sat it on Chester's porch to let it get a little sun. After a few hours, the ice had melted enough that the penny slipped right to the bottom of the cup. I then put the cup back in the freezer, being very careful to position it exactly where it was when I took it out before moving on to the last phase of my insidious plan. I started blowing up Chester's phone with calls and frantic text messages. Chester, where is your circuit breaker? I can't find it and your power's off. Get back to me ASAP. I did this countless times over the next two days before I finally got a call back from Chester. He told me immediately where to go in his garage to find the circuit breaker which of course I already knew thanks to my prior detective work. I sat the phone down and flipped the circuit breaker twice. Once to turn it off and then a second time to turn it back on, giving it just enough time to mess with the digital clocks on all his appliances. And with that, my revenge was complete. All that was left was for Chester to come back home, which took another two days. When Chester got back home, I was nervous, but eager to see if my charade had worked. The next day I got a knock on my door. It was Chester. He asked me if I wanted some meat to give to my dogs. Apparently, the power had been off for too long and all the meat in his freezers had thawed out while he was gone, so he was throwing it out. I asked him how much he had and he said it was probably somewhere close to 300 pounds. He didn't want to waste it all, so he asked if I wanted to give some to my dogs. I graciously helped myself to roughly half a freezer's worth of meat some of which I stored in my own fridge, and the rest Chester was nice enough to offer to hold onto in his freezer until I needed it. The kicker is that Chester, of course, had no idea the meat never actually defrosted and was still perfectly good. That night, I helped myself and my dogs to a couple of nice steaks, courtesy of old Chester himself, who was still busy walking the neighborhood, unloading the tainted meat, on anyone who had a cat or dog that might want it. It was at least four or five months before me and my dogs went through all the meat Chester had given us. I don't know if I made all my money back for the repairs on my car, but I didn't have to buy any meat for many a fortnight. Well, there we go. What a brilliant way to start off today's episode. That was genius. Uh, I wonder if you guys can tell, by the way. Let me know in the comments down below if you could. The moment that I realized what exactly OP was going to do. I literally, a smile came on my face. I wonder if you could hear it in my in my voice there. But yeah, genius. So simple. I really like these sort of revenges where nobody really gets harmed. It's just good old revenge. Obviously, your neighbor Chester OP lost a lot of money here from the meat. But so did you by him failing to tell you that it was obviously him that, that crashed into your car. So that's fair. That's karma. He deserves it. Simple as that. Let me know as well down below, guys, in the comments when you realized exactly what OP was going to do and how simple it was. So good. Like, how can just doing this as an action, going outside, holding a cup of water and then putting it back in the freezer cause this amount of damage? I think about that. That is absolutely insane. But yeah, loved it. Let's move on to our next story of nuclear revenge. Drive over a kid's bike 
pay the price. Okay, this story took place a very long time ago in the summer of 1969. I was about 12. I had an early morning paper route in my neighborhood. One of the first things that I bought with my earnings was a brand new 10 speed bike. It was silver with red trim. I was really proud of it and I took very good care of it. I also used it to deliver my newspapers in the morning. One of my customers was often leaving for work around the time that I got there. I always made a point of parking my bike well off to the side while I went up to deliver his paper. This particular morning, he turned too soon and too sharply while backing out of his driveway and backed right over my bikes, ruining the front sprocket and derailleur. He stuck his head out the window and asked, Is it okay? Not exactly, I said. Well, that's what you get for leaving it behind my car. Then he drove off. I walked at home, crushed and upset. I felt helpless against this adult who clearly had no intention of doing anything about it and I didn't know what to do. My hurt, frustration and powerlessness gradually turned to anger. I stopped delivering his paper and when he complained, I told my supervisor that I was delivering but he just liked to complain. So ultimately, it wasn't held against me. But the real revenge was yet to come. He lived on the main route through the neighborhood that all the kids took to go to the local 7-Eleven and other places. His mailbox sat on a steel fence post loosely set into the ground. That summer, I got in the habit of pulling it up and throwing it over the fence into the cemetery across the street, maybe once or twice a week. It was fun and mischievous, but it still didn't satisfy my need for revenge. He had three large frond shrubs in his front yard that would grow to six or eight feet over the course of the summer and then begin to die back. They were several feet apart with nothing else close by. One August evening, I threw a lit match into one on my way home from the 7-Eleven. I never heard anything else, but on my route the next morning, it was just a burnt husk in his front yard. Over the next couple of weeks, I did the same to the other two. I was beginning to feel a bit satisfied. But one morning on the way home from delivering papers, I had an inspiration. I saw that the side window of his garage was open. Now, I knew that what I was considering was taking it a bit far, but I was an impulsive kid, and I thought that tit for tat was fair. Back in the day, everybody carried road flares, aka emergency flares, in their cars. So I climbed through the window, found two flares, lit them, and stuck one right under slash behind each of his rear tires. Then I climbed out and hightailed it home and went back to bed. I didn't go back to see what happened, and I stayed away from the area for several days. I knew that I'd ruined his tires. I never saw the result, but I didn't care and I never did another thing to him. Well, my immediate reaction to this story is that perhaps this is a little bit strong, uh, potentially blowing up someone's car. I mean, who knows what actually happened to the to the tires, if it was just the tires or if it was more. But then, this is a guy that took advantage of a kid and pretty much in his head, I imagine, was just like, you know what, because you're just a child, I don't really care that I've broken your bike. Just deal with it. But there's no way that he'd have the same reaction if it was an adult and an adult's bike. I just don't believe that. I think he's only said that and done that because you're a kid and probably didn't expect any repercussions. And you showed him that sometimes kids can get better revenge than adults. Phenomenal stuff. Now, you know what's actually amazing about this story is that this happened, what, 54 years ago? So this guy, OP, is now in his 60s, mid-60s, just chilling on Reddit, just writing out this story and saying, you know what, yeah. I'm a fan of this subreddit and I was one of the originators. You know, this revenge is over half a century old. It's so good. I absolutely love it. And uh, yeah, great stuff. A lawyer's pro revenge on a wife beater. Let's call him Joe. 
I have to call him something. The man I ruined, but I can't call him by his real name, so let's call him Joe. Joe was a wife beater. I was hired by Joe's brother-in-law, the brother of the wife that Joe beats. My client was also Joe's ex-business partner. Aside from the whole you beat up my sister thing, my client had another beef with Joe, a serious business beef. My client took it to court and gave me the case to handle. Joe and his lawyers fought me long and hard. Joe was confident that his BS and outright perjury would carry the day. It had always worked before. His BS and his fists had won him a good settlement with his ex-wife, free of child support, so maybe he thought that threats and lies would carry the day once more. But he was wrong. And after the trial, I had a judgment against him. A big judgment, far bigger than he could pay. Joe twisted and turned and shimmied and shaked, but after a while, I'd located and taken all his assets. It was easy, really. Joe had no thought of consequences, and so he didn't lawyer up until it was too late. If one of my clients ever sues you, you're in trouble, because my clients lawyer up before they even know your name. But Joe didn't lawyer up until the process server threw the papers at his feet, and by then it was far too late. I went through Joe's assets like a meat grinder, and after a while, Joe had but one property left, a house, and he clung to that house for it was rented out and his sole source of income. Joe lived in the unfinished basement and he survived on what the upstairs tenants paid him. He cashed their rent checks at payday loan places, paying hefty fees, but it was worth it because he knew that I'd garnish any bank account that he opened. Joe managed to hide his rental place from me for a while because he owned it through a numbered company, but my investigator found him one day and followed him home. Joe self-repped his way through the next stage, which took a couple of years, while I punctured his corporate veils and his sad efforts at a fraudulent conveyance. But in the end, I had his last house, the house where he lived in the unfinished basement. Joe stepped out one day to get a pack of cigarettes, and when he came back, the sheriff had changed the locks. Can my client at least live in the basement? Joe's lawyer said to me, pro bono, because by this point, Joe had nothing to pay lawyers. I knew the pro bono guy. He practiced law nearby. As I was talking to him, I could see pro bono's guy's office window across the parking lot from my office tower window. Ask the purchaser, I said. It's out of my hands. And it was. I told Joe's lawyer that the new owner, a nominee, one of my client's employees, wouldn't let him back into his trashy basement apartment. Joe, a man who had owned this and that here and there and all over town, had just lost the last thing he owned on earth. Except for his truck. He still had his truck left. Joe's truck was this big gas guzzling beast that he drove around in. It was too old and too frail to be worth seizing, so I let Joe keep it. And I was glad I did that, because now the truck was where Joe slept. Until he made a mistake and lost his truck too. He lost his truck the day I got a phone call from the tenants at the house that Joe used to own. He came back and parked his truck across the driveway, the tenant said, adding that Joe had gone nuts. He'd parked his truck there in a rage, out of spite, and then walked into town, saying he'd be back later that day to sleep in his truck. Can you get around the truck? I asked. The tenant could not. The driveway was blocked. I called one of the tow truck guys that I used to defend back in my criminal lawyer days. And in a couple of hours, that truck was gone and parked somewhere else. Somewhere special in accordance with my specific instructions. My guy wants his truck back, the pro bono lawyer said the next day when he called me. Not happening, I said. 
I stood in my office, 15 floors above the parking lot, and looked down where I imagined my pro bono counterpart was standing in his office, facing the same lot. But you have no right to the truck, he said. Well, he has no right to block a man's driveway, I replied. It was terrible, really. Standing up high, pronouncing words that took away a man's final asset, the last thing he owned on earth. I imagine that this must be what God feels like before he strips a man of everything and sends him to hell. Are you really going to make me go to court over this? Said the pro bono guy. Do what you got to do, I said. And pro bono guy said his client was coming in the next day to sign an affidavit. And then they were going to court to get the truck back. But I was unconcerned. The next day was bright and the sun was shining and it was 9am as I looked out the window and sipped my coffee. My phone rang. I picked up and it was pro bono man. Why didn't you tell me that Joe's truck was parked right outside my office? His voice was tight and I could tell that he must have been shaking with anger. Is that so? I said, staring out at Joe's truck parked 15 stories below me. How careless of my bailiff to leave the truck where your client could easily take it back. I really must speak to him. Very funny. My client's going to sue. No, he isn't. He's going to get in that truck and drive away right now. I told my tow guy to fill up the tank and he gave it an oil change too. Gratis. Tell your client to get in his truck and drive off and that if I ever see that truck again, I'll seize it to satisfy the rest of my client's judgments. Pro bono guy tried to argue, but I was firm. Then I put the phone down and picked up my coffee. A few minutes later, Joe walked out of his lawyer's office and over to his truck. As he walked, I saw that there was no longer a bounce to his step. The joy had gone out of him. Joe wasn't the first guy I ruined and he won't be the last, but he is the only one whose final ruin I witnessed from on high from my office. And it was one of the most powerful experiences of my life. Watching a man walk to his truck, knowing that I'd stripped him of everything else he had and that he owed his possession of his last asset, his truck, to my mercy. Joe drove away, his big ancient truck spilling clouds of smoke from the exhaust. I was pretty sure I'd never hear from him again, and I never did. And there we go. That is the end of that one. Now, again, might seem a little bit harsh, kind of like the first story, but with this one, we need to remember, and I was trying to remind myself as I was going through this, Joe is a wife beater. Does it get much worse than that? No. So therefore, of course, this is all completely vindicated. Now, to be fair, this does kind of read a little bit like fiction, but I'm just looking back through OP's posts just on his Reddit account. And it is all lawyer stuff. So I do believe that OP is an actual lawyer. Maybe they're just good at writing as well and and came up with this. Thought was brilliant. Well, well written for sure. If I must admit, it did read a little bit like a story rather than an account of events. But yeah, great stuff. Let me know down below what you thought. An attorney's dream case. My parents versus the bank. In 1973, my parents had enough money to build a little ranch house in the country. The small bank in town approved the mortgage and the bank signed a contract to give Bob the money to build the house. Bob, as it turns out, was overbooking himself all over town, leaving his clueless minions to do the actual work. The build took longer and longer, with more and more work having to be ripped out and redone. We're not talking about using the wrong color paint or nailing up some wonky trim here. The architect forgot to fully erase a line on the blueprints and the framers built a wall through the bathtub. My mother was told, don't put anything heavy in the kitchen cabinets because they were attached to the drywall, not the studs, using a few roofing nails through the back of each cabinet. The garage door opening was framed into the living room instead of towards the driveway and so on. 
When the bank's representative showed up for the final inspection, my parents met him in the front yard and refused to sign off on Bob's work. Then the representative became angry as the bank had paid Bob a lot of money. He strode to the front door and pulled on the doorknob, whereupon the entire door, casing included, fell on him. It has simply been wedged, not nailed, into place. The bank called Bob, who finally showed up to supervise the work himself. The only problem was that Bob wasn't any better at building a house than his minions were. My parents still refused to sign off on the house. My mother was a stay-at-home mum in a nasty rental with two tiny children while my dad was working two jobs while this was going on. Throughout the entire process, the bank and Bob treated them very poorly, bullying my mum and lying to my dad. What should have been an exciting time for my parents was ruined. My mum cried a lot and my dad got depressed. Finally, the bank threatened my parents with foreclosure and Bob threatened to sue my parents for breach of contract because the bank refused to pay him any more money. So my exhausted parents went to an attorney and gave him the rundown. Plumbing, electrical, tiling issues, the whole sorry mess. My parents were scared. All they had was their small down payment savings. So if this became a lengthy court battle, the bank and Bob would win. The attorney, Tom, was kind, but my dad said he could tell that he and mum were doomed from Tom's facial expressions as he sorted through the paperwork. Then, abruptly, Tom smiled. Let's get everyone together for a meeting, he told my parents. Tomorrow. So my parents, Tom, the bank's representative, the bank's attorney, Bob, and Bob's attorney met at the bank. Tom didn't give anyone else time to begin. He said, well, my clients have decided that they no longer want this house. Please remove it. Everyone else starts to laugh. Remove it? Have you lost your mind? Tom, in a sweeping theatrical gesture, placed a deed on the table. My clients own the land the house is sitting on outright. They no longer want the house. So get the house off my client's land. Bob's attorney stared at the deed and then turned and stared at Bob. You built a house on land you don't own? Bob nodded. The bank's attorney started yelling at the bank's representative. You didn't finance the land the house is on? The representative stammered. Uh, no. Tom said firmly. As I said, gentlemen, you're trespassing on my client's land. I expect the house to be removed and the land returned to its original state at once. My dad said he'll remember the blank looks everyone on the other side of the table passed to one another for his whole life. Sure, the bank could foreclose on a house that wouldn't exist by the end of the week with no way to recoup the money. They didn't even own the land it was on. Bob was out the 50% he'd paid out of pocket. Plus, he was on the hook for tearing down the house and removing it. On top of that, the bank would undoubtedly want him to repay the initial 50% they'd given him. So could they have gone after my parents? Well, sure. A foreclosure would have meant bad credit for my parents moving forward and they might lose their down payment. But to sign off on the house in its condition at that time would have meant thousands and thousands of dollars in cash to replace slash repair everything from the roof to the basement before the house could be safely lived in. The bank knew my parents didn't have that kind of money, but they're the ones who approved the mortgage. Suddenly, my parents were good people. It was all such a misunderstanding and the bank and Bob couldn't do enough for them. The house was brought in line with the original blueprints and specifications immediately at no extra cost to my parents, but at considerable cost to Bob. My parents signed the mortgage. Bob got the rest of his money and just about broke even on the build. The bank's representative was fired. And Tom, attorney extraordinaire, got a stinging tale of triumph to recall to fellow attorneys for the rest of his life.
And there we go. Wow. I mean, throughout all of that, I was just thinking if this attorney, Tom, didn't show up or, you know, they got another attorney that wasn't as good at their job, they could have been in some serious, serious trouble. Now, a couple of things that OP has added to give some more context to this story, which I'll put on screen right now and read out. First of all, before you question this tale, please remember that 1973 was 50 years ago. That is when this story took place. Banks did things differently back then. Smaller rural banks in particular were not run the same way the bigger city banks were. There were far fewer federal regulations and in a smaller community, people didn't always follow them anyway. I'm pretty sure they don't always follow them now. Yeah, that's fair enough. This does seem like, you know, some of the, the regulations and, and some of the, the ways in which the bank, Bob, etc., have a working relationship or are going about this sort of deal are a little bit strange. But yeah, fair point. This did happen half a century ago, so that is understandable. And secondly, OP continues saying that, yes, they did actually build a wall through the bathtub. No, I'm not making that up. I even left out how a plumber left his lunch bag on a partially built kitchen cabinet, but the cabinet maker didn't feel it was his job to move the bag, so he left it there and built the rest of the cabinet around it. Oh my word. I don't know where Bob found these people, but they were gems. Every one of them. <laughs> Unbelievable. I mean, yeah, crazy. Everyone in this story just really isn't up to their job and we can all agree on that but my word i'm just so happy that, that tom really helped save your parents hey it's paige Desorbo from giggly squad high quality fashion without the price tag say hello to quince i'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters sleek leather jackets fine jewelry and so much more with quince being 50 to 80 percent less than similar brands and they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. <laughs> 